Well, we're on time today. Uh, not ready, but we're on time. Welcome to the mop up for July 18th. Is it July 18th? Yes, it's the 18th. July 18th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 84 degrees and it's wet. It's very wet. I hope you all had a, a nice weekend. I uh, I relaxed. And thank you all for the notes that you've been sending me. I really appreciate it. And I will be returning all my emails and letters uh, as the week moves forward. Donald Trump's campaign manager and confidant, Steve Bannon, is facing criminal contempt of Congress charges after he failed to cooperate with the January 6th committee. The Justice Department is pursuing this and jury selection began today for his trial. The committee, the January 6th committee, has scheduled its final hearing for this Thursday. The committee has subpoenaed the Secret Service records to determine why they deleted text messages from January 6th. The committee hopes to discover how hard Trump actually fought to be driven to the Capitol after he gave his speech on the ellipse that morning. Well, Roger Stone now claims his speech is protected by the entire First Amendment, not just freedom of speech, but religious freedom as well. Uh, Roger Stone gave a speech on January 5th, firing up his crowd. And here's what Roger Stone said defending his speech. I gave a speech on the night of the 5th. They played a bite of it. Uh, and I, I expressed my apocalyptic view as a Christian that what the country faced was a fight between dark and light, between good and evil, between the godly and the godless. They claim that that was the incitement to violence. No, that's anti-religious bigotry. I have every right to say that. The Constitution enshrines it. But now, free speech of any kind is pointed to as seditious. Uh, the Constitution Constitution doesn't protect you uh doesn't allow you to call for sedition as part of your religious beliefs, your apocalyptic Christian religious beliefs. Meanwhile, the Trump family is mourning the death of Ivana Trump, who died last week. And how does Donald Trump mourn the loss of his beloved first wife by going on social media to raise money? This is an actual tweet that Donald Trump sent out on his personal social media platform. I am very sad, very sad to inform all of those who loved her, of which there are many, that Ivana Trump has passed away at her home in New York City. She was a wonderful, beautiful, and amazing woman who I abandoned for someone younger, even though I raped her and should have been kinder. No, you didn't write that. And uh, she was, uh, her pride and joy were her three children, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric, and then right below that, it says, donate to save America. And he's encouraging people to donate to uh, Donald Trump's next presidential campaign. Well, if you'll remember Friday night, we talked about this. Ivana Trump died from natural causes at the age of 73. Oh, wait. Developing tonight, the medical examiner has ruled Ivana Trump's death an accident, saying that she died due to blunt impact injuries of the torso. The 73-year-old was found dead yesterday at the foot of the stairs inside her 64th Street home on the Upper East Side. Reports have suggested that she fell 
down the stairs. Okay. Uh, first of all, let's not traffic in crazy conspiracy theories. Uh, a blood, blunt impact injuries to the torso. If you're married to Donald Trump, that's natural causes. L let's not come up with crazy conspiracy theories. It was perfectly normal for his first wife to fall down a flight of stairs. I'm sure a lot of women who were in relationships with Donald Trump fell down flights of steps. Well, how is Donald Trump handling this? He has a big uh, rally scheduled. He had one Friday night scheduled in uh, Arizona, but he had to cancel it because of the death of his uh, wife, first wife. And this is how it was reported in Prescott, Arizona. Just into our newsroom, former President Donald Trump has rescheduled his rally tomorrow in Prescott due to the passing of his ex-wife, Ivana Trump. That rally has been rescheduled for next Friday, we know. We don't yet know where or what time. We'll be sure to keep you posted. That's how much pain Donald is in. Next week, give me a week to mourn. Let me bury her and uh, we'll be back on the road raising. He couldn't even stop raising money right after she died. Well, uh, today, prosecutors said they will seek the death penalty for Nicholas Cruz, who was found guilty of the massacre of 17 people at a Parkland, Florida high school more than four years ago. The federal government is charging that white gunman accused of killing 10 people inside a Buffalo supermarket with a hate crime. The 27-count federal indictment could result in the death penalty for Peyton Gendron, who pled not guilty today. In Japan, the prime minister, Fumio Kishida, blamed the police for last week's assassination of former Japanese prime minister Shinzo Abe. The prime minister blamed the police for not providing proper security. A heat wave is burning through Europe. Great Britain has declared a national emergency with today expected to hit 104 degrees. It's the hottest day on record. Schools and doctor's offices have been closed. People are being told to work from home as train travel has been slowed to a crawl for fear the heat has ruined the tracks. The Conservative Party in England aired televised debates on Sunday among the five members of Parliament who are vying to replace Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party. But because they're conservatives, they seem uh, more fixated on high energy costs than they are on high temperatures. They didn't seem to talk about the heat wave. They just complained about how expensive it was to cause the heat wave, high energy costs. Neoliberalism cannot tackle climate catastrophe. It can only exacerbate it. I'll go back to the heat wave in Europe in a second, but if you want to defeat neoliberalism, you have to vote and you have to capture your government. There's a misunderstanding about what we're up against with neoliberalism. A lot of people think neoliberals are the same thing as laissez-faire capitalists. They think the neoliberals just want to weaken government so the markets could be freed. And this is not true. Robert Kuttner has a great piece in the New York Review of Books this week. And he writes that neoliberalism is an outgrowth of the New Deal, where Conservative economists became neoliberals after they figured out that government is necessary to protect capitalism from 
democracy. This is really important. This is why you can't give up on government because the neoliberals have not. Conservative economists figured out that government is necessary to protect capitalism from democracy. In other words, too much democracy would destroy capitalism. Professor Harvey J.K. has talked about this on the show about the Trilateral Commission issuing a report in around 1975, 1976, and they said, we have too much democracy around the world. And one of the signatories to that report was Jimmy Carter, a member of the Trilateral Commission, who then got the Democratic nomination and began to deregulate our economy. This is why you have to vote. This is why you cannot let up on our government, because the neoliberals will not. The neoliberals have set their eyes not on the free market, because there's no such thing as a free market. They have set their sights on our government, and they have captured it, and we have to take it back. They took over our government to make sure a government of the people wouldn't protect the people from corporate America. The American government is not dysfunctional. It's working exactly for the people who control it. And that would be the neoliberals who represent Wall Street and corporate America. Government, I talk about this all the time, is roughly one third of the economy. So how our government spends its money determines who stays rich and who stays poor. Don't believe the Republicans who tell you that Washington must be destroyed. They don't mean it. They don't want to destroy Washington. That's where their fire hose of cash comes from. Washington, D.C. isn't going anywhere. The neoliberal plan is for people like you and me to think that Wall Street and corporate America don't care about Washington, D.C., so neither should we. Meanwhile, they are using Washington, D.C. as their personal piggy bank. Vote. Get involved. Well, parts of Western France hit triple digits today, as did Italy, with farmers in Milan picking tomatoes before they turn into marinara. That's true. They're, they're picking unripened tomatoes to save them from the heat. This record heat will cause record prices for wheat, vegetables, and food stuff. But Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia insists inflation is caused by government spending, not his beloved oil companies roasting the planet. Meanwhile, Joe Biden, our president, I think, was in Saudi Arabia over the weekend trying to get them to open up their pumps. Instead of declaring war on fossil fuels, instead of addressing the American people and saying we have to get off fossil fuel, he's begging the Saudis for more of what's killing us. Now, Biden and the Democrats had a bill that would provide $300 billion in tax incentives for electric cars, as well as solar and wind. But on Friday, it died. It died while President Biden was in Saudi Arabia. It was in Saudi Arabia, of all places, that Joe Biden admitted that his climate change bill was dead. How appropriate that Joe Biden would be in Saudi Arabia, where you'd have to confess that his climate change bill is dead.
It's dead because Joe Biden was more concerned about meeting with the Saudis than he was getting climate change legislation passed here in America. Joe Biden was concerned more about more fossil fuels getting pumped out of the ground to kill us than he was trying to pass legislation to keep that oil in the ground. Think about this. Joe Biden has a bill in the Senate to address climate change. He claims, he claims he wants it passed, and he claims that he's determined to wean our nation off fossil fuels. But where does Biden spend his energy on fossil fuels? He's in Saudi Arabia. But somehow Joe Manchin is the bad guy. Well, yes, he is the bad guy, but he's not as bad as Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia, who Biden chose to meet with instead of Joe Manchin. Here's what Biden was asked in, appropriately enough, here's what he was asked in Saudi Arabia about Joe Manchin and the climate change bill. Mr. President, is Joe Manchin negotiating in good faith? I didn't negotiate with Joe Manchin. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't negotiate with Joe Manchin. I have no idea. But you negotiate with Mohammed bin Salman. You fly all the way over to Saudi Arabia, but you can't waltz over to the Senate and sit down with Joe Manchin and work something out. No. But that's how Biden sold himself to us in 2020. He was the lion of the Senate. He could work with McConnell. That's what he told us. And back then we knew that was never going to happen. But certainly Biden knew how to deal with members of his own party like Joe Manchin, right? No. Turns out he lied to us. He had no idea how to deal with Joe Manchin. You know, I've talked about this before. After the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, Obama had just been reelected and he put his vice president, Joe Biden, in charge of passing some kind of assault weapons ban. This was right after Barack Obama was reelected. So he had political capital and he wanted to spend it on gun reform. And not only did he have the political capital of getting reelected, he had the political capital of 21st graders and six adults getting slaughtered in Sandy Hook. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, Obama had a lot of political capital back then to, to move the needle on an assault weapons ban. You probably don't remember this because so much has happened. But 10 years ago, after Sandy Hook, the NRA was running scared. Wayne LaPierre went into hiding. And then a week after the shooting, Wayne LaPierre, the CEO of the National Rifle Association, he finally materialized and he came out with an unhinged speech. At least it seemed unhinged back then. Now it comes across as per perfectly reasonable. This was about 10 years ago. And Wayne LaPierre, people thought he had lost his mind. He said the solution to school shootings was more guns. He said we needed to arm teachers and schools needed more armed guards. And you have to understand that 10 years ago, this was crazy talk. This is what he said. Trust me, this was considered insane 10 years ago. Our children 
We as a society leave them every day utterly defenseless. And the monsters and the predators of the world know it and exploit it. That must change now. Okay, so those of you watching were treated to the visual of Wayne LaPierre's speech interrupted silently by a gigantic pink flag that read NRA kills children. It was from Code Pink. So but the NRA 10 years ago was on life support. Like I said, Obama had just been reelected. There was this massacre at Sandy Hook. The Republicans still had the House, but the Democrats had the Senate. And practically, I mean, if there was any time you could get some kind of gun reform, that was the time. And Biden was sent by Obama to the Capitol to make a deal because Joe Biden was vice president because he was the lion of the Senate, the lying lion of the Senate. Turns out he really wasn't that good at making deals, but that's how he sold himself to Obama and the American people. Biden has spent his entire life in the Senate. That's all he knows. He's had one job his entire life. He was 30 years old when he got elected to the Senate. He knows the Senate, so people automatically assume he knows how to get bills passed, right? Let me tell you something. If somebody is pushing 80 and they've had one job since they were 30, fire them. They're idiots. They're idiosavants. With Biden, it's, he's not even a savant. Anyway, Obama put him in charge of getting some kind of assault weapons bill passed. And Joe Biden worked personally with Joe Manchin, who had just arrived at the Senate. And the bill that was presented was called Manchin Toomey. It was Manchin, of all people, who reached across the aisle to bring Pennsylvania Senator and Republican Pat Toomey on board. And, and they proposed Manchin Toomey. It was toothless, but it was something, and it died. How did Biden help get it passed? He did nothing. He never picked up a phone. A Democratic Senate aide told the Washington Post earlier this year about Manchin Toomey. Biden's role, this is a quote, Biden's role in that was a joke. This is from a former Democratic Senate aide who was speaking uh, anonymously. He said, Biden could fight his way out of a paper bag. Biden did not move one single person on this bill. It was Manchin who got to me, and Manchin is the one who really put things together. So when it comes to negotiating with Manchin, trying to make Manchin happy, you know who knows that Joe Biden is a cipher? Joe Manchin. It is Manchin who has Biden's number, not the other way around. Biden does not scare Joe Manchin. Manchin learned a decade ago on Manchin Toomey, he learned this firsthand, that Biden is a cipher. He learned that Biden, Biden was a lot of bluster and pretty much uh, on his side, on Manchin's side, when it came to important issues like government spending. 
you know, Manchin fancies himself as a fiscal hawk. And uh, I don't think he and Biden have uh, too much to disagree on when it comes to Social Security and entitlements. Here is Joe Biden back in 1997. I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Somebody has to tell me in here how we're going to do this hard work without dealing with any of those sacred cows. How about you protect the sacred cows because they're sacred, Joe? That's who Biden is. Now, let's talk about Biden misspeaking all the time. Did he sound like he couldn't talk back then? He was pretty articulate. His cognitive ability was pretty sharp back then. That's why he was the darling of the Sunday morning shows. You couldn't turn on a television set on a Sunday morning with Joe, without Joe Biden being on one of those talk shows, because back then he was incredibly sharp. And, you know, now they say, well, he was born with a stutter and that's why he makes mistakes when he speaks. Well, I didn't see the stutter 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. He used to be incredibly articulate, but this is Biden over the weekend calling our soldiers, he was in, he was in Saudi Arabia, and he called our soldiers selfish. We'll always honor the bravery and selfishness, selflessness of the and sacrifices of the Americans who served. Is that the same guy? Uh, is this the same guy? Is it, you, you tell me. Is this the same guy? I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant That's Medicaid. not the same guy. Here is Joe Biden on the same trip to the Middle East. Here he is at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, thanking the Nazis. Which we must do every, every day, continue to bear witness. To keep alive the truth and honor of the Holocaust, horror of the Holocaust, honor. The truth and honor of the Holocaust. You know, as we get older, we're more prone to Freudian slips. Now, not everyone ages the same way. Take Bernie. Bernie Sanders is 80. My mother was perfectly lucid well into her 80s. Some would say too lucid. I could have used some short-term and long-term memory loss. It would have been a lot easier to be around her. I look at Bernie, I see my mother. This is Bernie on Sunday's ABC This Week. This is Bernie. Uh, this is Bernie yesterday. On the Democrats' no, Martha, plans he didn't to abruptly. pass... Martha, oh, oh, okay, Martha, let, 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 okay. he abruptly on Friday He didn't did abruptly that. do anything. He was he negotiating for a while. the president's agenda. No. Uh, look, if you check the record six months ago, I made it clear that you have people like Manchin, Cinema to a lesser degree, who are intentionally sabotaging the president's agenda, what the American people want, what a majority of us in the Democratic caucus want. Nothing new about this. And the problem was that we continue to talk to Manchin like he was serious. He was not. This is a guy who is a major recipient of fossil fuel money, a guy who has received 
campaign contributions from 25 Republican billionaires. You okay, think this guy but, uh, is Senator, I no. want. I, I, okay, you say he wasn't serious, but Manchin says his main goal is to do what's good for West Virginia, and he's worried about inflation. Listen to what he told really, the West Virginia really. radio station. Listen to. Really, really, this is how Bernie deals with Manchin. Now, look, Manchin, as I said, his first introduction to the Senate was dealing with Joe Biden on the assault weapons ban, and he realized that Biden was weak. Manchin knows Biden isn't tough. He does know that that Bernie is to be feared. And whether you like it or not, that's what politics, that's what politics is, fear. Power is fear. In politics, you win by making those around you terrified. There are consequences to not agreeing with me. Nobody is afraid of Joe Biden. Let's get back to to Bernie now. He was on ABC this week on Sunday, and Manchin is saying he can't pass a climate bill because of inflation. Manchin says we can't have government spending because... That causes inflation, even though inflation is rampant throughout the world. He insists it's our government spending that's causing inflation. Like I said on Friday's show, uh, 30%, about 30% of inflation is housing costs. You want to lower inflation? You spend more money to build more homes. You create more of a supply. Raising interest rates, that's Instead, that's what they're doing at the Federal Reserve. It's anti-democratic. Nobody elected Jerome Powell. Raising interest rates is not democratic. Why does Jerome Powell over at the Federal Reserve get to dictate how America fights inflation? There are other ways to combat inflation instead of jump-starting a recession, which is exactly what Jerome Powell is promising to do. He's making borrowing so expensive that people won't be able to buy homes or start businesses. Well, no matter how high you raise interest rates, it's not going to bring down the price of oil or food. You know what would? Ending the war in Ukraine. That's that's what would bring down inflation. Gee, I wonder how Ukraine is going. Let's check and see. We have, you know, 70, 80 billion dollars available for for Ukraine. Uh, Let's see. uh, How is that going? I I think we have some information. I thought we did. Okay, we don't. Oh, yeah, we do. Okay, let's see how Ukraine is going. Tonight, Russia ramping up its ruthless attacks on civilians. The eastern city of Dnipro, the latest target. Videos circulating online showing locals watching as missiles rain down. Ukrainian officials confirming at least three people killed in the attack. A U.S. official saying Russian strikes killing up to 150 innocent people in just the past two weeks. And new details tonight on Russia's deadly attack on the city of Vinitsa in central Ukraine. A U.S. official saying the missiles were fired from a submarine, adding there was no sign of a military target in the area. Among those killed, four-year-old Lisa, seen in this video, thought to be taken just before the attack. This, her stroller at the scene. Her mother tonight in intensive care. Her family telling us she's unaware her daughter is dead. 
So it's not going particularly well for Ukraine. Zelensky had to purge his cabinet, his security detail. It's rife, rampant with spies. And uh, it's not going well. It's not going well for Ukraine. Seems to me we should start negotiating. Even Henry Kissinger says we have to negotiate. Not only that, if we negotiate, uh, it will make the price of oil and food go down. It turns out peace is uh, how you fight inflation. We had rampant inflation in the 70s because of the spending on the Vietnam War. So peace, you want, you want to get rid of inflation and the war and, and the war in Ukraine. You know what else causes inflation? Uh, major supply chain disruptions. And you know what causes major supply chain disruptions? Climate change. That causes inflation. There are ways to bring down inflation other than raising interest rates and causing a recession, if not a depression. If you want to bring down the cost of health care, well, you make it free. You have the government pay for it. You want to bring down the cost of medicine? Allow Medicare to negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies. That's how you bring down inflation. You want to bring down the cost of education? Make it free. There isn't a, there isn't a logical uh, argument to say that government spending causes inflation. Manchin is just spreading another lie. Well, here's Bernie talking back to Joe Manchin on Sunday. Manchin says he won't consider any new spending bills. And by the way, it's all up to him. He won't consider any new spending bills until he gets more information on inflation. He says if he senses inflation is under control, then he would be willing to consider passing a climate bill. He's worried about inflation. The planet has seven more years left. We'll all be dead. But at least Joe Manchin made sure that the dollar was strong. So Joe Manchin is worried about inflation. Uh, the record heat is causing a drought, forcing Italy to ration water. This is the future. I'll play uh, Bernie uh, in a second. This is the future. It's here. In Spain today, a train was forced to come to a complete halt, engulfed in smoke, surrounded by flames. A panicked passenger posted this video on Twitter. Take a look at this. Look at that. This is terrifying. The train in Spain fails mainly without rain. You think these people are worried that government spending on a climate bill is going to cause inflation? This is exactly why and I'm frozen. God damn it. Fuck me. With hindsight, we can say the raw elementary was not adequately prepared. Am I back? I'm back. Okay. Uh, this is why everybody hates America. Spain has mass transit. 75% of the cost of gasoline is taxes. Spain purposely jacks up the price of gas to encourage its citizens to take the train. And now, because of America refusing to pass climate change legislation, the planet continues to heat up. And that's Spain's reward for using mass transit, being engulfed in flames from global warming. 
they're doing their part. Spain is doing their part. 43% of Spain's electricity comes from renewable energy. Uh, in about eight years, 80% of their electricity will come from renewable energy. Spain is doing their part, like most of Europe, but America refuses. And that's why we've lost our moral authority around the world. Who's responsible for those fires engulfing that train? Not Spain. America, only 12% of America's energy consumption is renewable. America is responsible for at least 30% of the world's greenhouse gases. Uh, and China, too. But the only reason China is producing all those greenhouse gases is we are propping up their economy by buying all their useless shit that we don't need. Here's more of Spain and... Uh, Portugal. Take a look at this. This is Spain and Portugal. Italy and Spain spent the weekend frying from a record-setting heat wave. But Manchin says we have to worry about inflation. That's what we have to worry about. The big problem is inflation. Uh, here's Bernie talking back to Joe Manchin about uh, inflation. People should have health care as a human right, like in every other country on earth. That's what they will say. Inflation is absolute. Inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. They can't buy gasoline. They have a hard time buying groceries. Everything they buy and consume for their daily lives is a hardship to them. Your reaction to that, Senator? Well, look, the same nonsense the Manchin has been talking about for a year. West Virginia, it's a beautiful state. I've had the pleasure of being there. Great people. It is one of the poorest states in this country. You ask the people of West Virginia whether they want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and eyeglasses. You ask the people of West Virginia whether we should demand that the wealthiest people in large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes. Ask the people of West Virginia whether or not all people should have health care as a human right like in every other country on earth. That's what they will say. In my humble opinion, you know, Manchin represents the very wealthiest people in this country, not working families in West Virginia or America. Well, let's ask Joe Biden what uh, what he has to say. Which we must do every, every day, continue to bear witness. To keep alive the truth and honor of the Holocaust, horror of the hol Holocaust. Oh, I don't know. Seems to me you got your climate change, you got your inflation, your gun violence, you got your homelessness. Seems to be Bernie is the antidote to Trump, in my humble opinion, not the dotard. That's an actual word and it hasn't been. You're still allowed to. <laughs> I think you're still allowed to call Joe Biden a dotard. I think I think it's OK. I don't think enough people have used the word dotard uh, to say that's politically incorrect. So I will continue to call Joe Biden a dotard. <laughs> Maybe I should pronounce it properly. Well, uh, you know, one of the people who does quite well on Fox News is Bernie Sanders. I don't know if you saw his debate against Lindsey Graham on Fox News last month. He wiped the floor with Lindsey Graham. Here is Fox News's Maria Bordaroma trying to get uh, to the bottom of Joe Biden's cognitive misfunctions. 
Congressman, there were signs that Joe Biden was declining during the 2020 campaign. I mean, let's face it. He stayed in the basement the whole time during during the campaign. Well, 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 but you know, that, that's not fair. There was COVID. I, I know people who watch Fox didn't know about COVID. That's unfair. Anyway, she's talking with Texas Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson about Joe Biden's cognitive decline. This is Texas Congressman. He's a freshman. Ronnie Jackson. Um, so who knew what when? Are they hiding this? And, and feeding him drugs to, to, to allow him to function. I know he goes home to Delaware a lot more than any other president. So I guess my question is, what did Obama know? What did Jill Biden know? And who's running the White House right now? And are they covering up for these uh, mental uh, issues? Well, that's the big question everybody's asking. Who's really pulling the strings? Who's running the country right now? We don't really know the answer to that. We don't know. You know... When Obama was president, Fox News, it was unfair to ask the questions about Obama. These are legitimate questions that Maria Bartiromo is asking. Where was Jill Biden? Where was Barack Obama? They worked, they knew Joe Biden intimately. Uh, it's political malfeasance. Anyway, this is, let's go back to Congressman Ronnie Jackson. Um, so who knew what when? Are they hiding this? and covering up for these uh, issues. Well, that's the big question everybody's asking. Who's really pulling the strings? Who's running the country right now? We don't really know the answer to that. We don't know if it's Susan Ross or Ron Klain or if it's Jill Biden or who it is, but somebody else is doing this. They're doing exactly what you said. They're rolling him out at specific times during the day. He's got good days and bad days, good, uh, you know, and, and whether or not they have him on drugs, I don't know. There are drugs out there that can increase your alertness and your memory and things of that nature, you know, and cover st stuff like this up temporarily. So I'm sure some of that's going on as well, but we don't know. Yeah, that is... Uh uh, F me. That is, there I am. That is Congressman Ronnie Jackson, Republican and good old boy from Texas. He represents Texas's 13th district. And he might know a thing or two about what drugs a president should take to pump up his cognitive skills. That's because Ronnie is not just a good old boy. He's an actual doctor, not just any doctor. He was Donald Trump's doctor back when Trump was president. And Trump loved Ronnie Jackson because Ronnie's the kind of doctor who does what he's told and he flatters the patient. When he would brief the press on Trump's health, Dr. Jackson said Trump's mind was incredibly sharp. He's, uh, he agreed to give Trump a few extra inches in order to classify Trump as obese as opposed to morbidly obese. You know, he made him taller so his weight only seemed obese as opposed to morbidly obese. Jackson said during the press briefings that Donald Trump could live to 200. His genes were just that good. So, of course, Donald Trump loved Ronnie Jackson, Dr. Ronnie Jackson. And so in 2018, Trump nominated Ronnie Jackson to head our Department of Veterans Affairs. Oops. Cabinet secretaries have to be confirmed. And some stuff came out. For example, Dr. Ronnie Jackson was known inside the White House as the candy man. Vanity Fair reports that Dr. Jackson handed out prescriptions to White House staffers 
for whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. There was no paperwork. He just handed them the pills. And apparently the drug of choice inside the Trump White House uh, was Ambien and then Provigil. You uh, take Ambien to sleep and you take Provigil to concentrate the mind. One of the side effects of Provigil and Ambien is hallucinations. So it's safe to say that the entire Trump administration was getting candy from Dr. Jackson. The candy man reportedly had his own drinking problem. He drunkenly crashed a government car after returning home from a Secret Service party. There were reports of his traveling with the president and loudly pounding on hotel doors of female staffers wanting to get in. So eventually the Defense Department's inspector general had a look into Dr. Ronnie Jackson. And despite major stonewalling from the White House, the Defense Department's inspector general concluded that there were mountains of evidence that Dr. Ronnie Jackson from the great state of Texas, there was mountains of evidence that he drank to excess, verbally abused his staff, sexually harassed the women who work for him. He bullied the women. He disparaged them behind their backs. He yelled, he screamed, and he created a toxic workplace inside the White House. And so he was finished. He had to withdraw his nomination for secretary a veterans affair, and he was left with no choice. He was, he was damaged goods. So he was left with no choice but to run for Congress as a Republican in Texas, and he won. In Texas, as a Republican, he won. He took office on January 3rd, 2021, in just enough time to vote against certifying the presidential election for Joe Biden. He attended the January 6th Stop the Steal rally, where President Trump instructed his followers to storm the Capitol. And Congressman Ronnie Jackson was inside the Capitol later that day during the insurrection. According to the Texas Tribune, the Oath Keepers exchanged texts during the siege concerned about protecting the life of Congressman Ronnie Jackson. In those texts, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, by the way, we looked it up, he did graduate from Yale Law School. Uh, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, texted his followers during the siege. They, he told them to give Dr. Ronnie Jackson his cell phone number if he needs any help getting out of the Capitol. Other members of the Oath Keepers exchanged texts advising each other that they should keep an eye out for Congressman Dr. Ronnie Jackson so they can keep him safe because he, quote, has critical data to protect, unquote. Well, this year it's midterms and Dr. Ronnie Jackson is running for re-election. Now, despite his past with Donald Trump and the Oath Keepers and, you know, drinking, crashing government cars harassing women, uh, he has kind of settled into the job of representing Texas's 13th congressional district. Uh, the solemnity of being a United States congressman has obviously taken hold. He's running for re-election. And here's a, a statement that uh, Congressman Ronnie Jackson issued early this morning. 
Hey everybody, this is Congressman Ronnie Jackson from the great state of Texas. I have a message for the Biden administration. If you're thinking about taking our ARs, you can start here in Texas. On behalf of all the law-abiding gun owners in the state of Texas, I just want to say, come and get it. Come and get it, which is exactly what he used to scream to Trump White House staffers as he waved a bottle of Ambien and another bottle of Provigil. Come and get it. That is doctor and congressman and Republican Ronnie Jackson, who you can't uh, see this if you're listening. He was holding not one, but two AR-15s as he made that statement. He made that statement on the same day, Sunday, a Texas House committee issued its report on what went wrong during the Evalde, Texas shooting that killed 19 students and two teachers on May 24th. This is Texas Republican State Representative Dustin Burroughs. He represents Lubbock, Texas, and he is the chairman of the committee that was formed on July 3rd to get to the bottom of what, what, what happened in Uvalde, Texas. In its 77-page report, his committee isolated the two major causes of the slaughter. Well, obviously, the, the number one cause is that anyone in Texas can walk into a gun store and buy an assault weapon, no questions asked. Right, Texas Republican State Representative Dustin Burroughs, right? If you know, and the training and standards we set for officers is if you know there's active shooting, active killing going on, or somebody is dying, the standard is you have to continue to do something to stop that killing or stop that dying. That day, several officers in the hallway or in that building knew or should have known there was dying in that classroom. And they should have done more, acted with urgency, tried the door handles, tried to go in through the windows, tried to distract him, tried to do something to address the situation. So it was the police officer's fault. Again, I, I thought the first problem would be how easy it is to purchase assault weapons. But I don't live in Texas. What do I know? So first, it was the cowardice of the Valde police. That's kind of disrespectful to our nation's police. I mean, every day we witness acts of bravery committed by our police all over America. For example, take Rochester, New York, where Dan lives. This is uh, what happened a week ago today. This is what happened in Rochester, New York. Our brave police officers whose reputations are being sullied unfairly. The incident happened on Monday. The ambulance bay in front of the emergency room is typically reserved for ambulances only, but the investigator was parked there, planning to go inside for a case. Sources tell me that's when the EMT from Monroe Ambulance got out to get the patient out. Her door hit the police car. The investigator asked for identification, but the EMT was intent on getting her patient inside. She kept moving with the man on a stretcher, and this is what happened while she was at the check-in desk. Um, 
This is a white police officer the beating. The Rochester Police Department tells me the investigator in this video has been placed on administrative assignment. And quote, at the direction of Chief Smith, the professional standards section is currently conducting an internal investigation. Monroe Ambulance says it's waiting for the outcome of that investigation, but believes its EMT was appropriately singularly focused on patient care. So that is a uh, that is a white that is a white police officer. Uh, in case you didn't notice, if you're listening, that is a, an EMT, uh, uh, an African American woman getting uh, arrested, roughly by a white police officer. Talk about police bravery! This is what happened: a, a police officer is parking where the ambulances are only allowed to park. A black female EMT arrives with someone on a stretcher trying to rush them into the emergency room. And apparently she opened the door of her ambulance and it hit the cop car and she kept going. She didn't look at the dent. She didn't apologize. She cared more about wheeling the patient into the emergency room. And this cop bravely raced into the emergency room. Did I mention he's white? And while this black EMT was attending to the patient on the stretcher in the emergency room, this white cop threw the black female EMT up against the wall, violently handcuffed and arrested her. Do you realize the courage that takes to arrest an ambulance driver in the middle of attending to a patient inside the emergency room? I mean, this woman slammed her ambulance door against a police car that was illegally parked in an ambulance parking space, and he arrested her. You know, that's courage to be that big of an asshole. Anyway, I digress. Back to the slaughter in Evalde, where close to 400, 600 police officers stood around while one kid with an AR-15 slaughtered all those children. Okay, so there's a special committee uh, down in uh, Texas, and they looked into what happened, the systemic failure, as they call it, and uh, they say it's the cops' fault. Okay, uh, that's one reason uh, it was a massacre. But you said there was a second reason for the massacre, what was the second reason this uh, turned out so, so bad? With hindsight, we can say the Rob Elementary was not adequately prepared for the risk of a school shooter. The school's five-foot fence was inadequate. Despite a policy of locked doors, there was a regrettable culture of noncompliance. In fact, all three exterior doors to the building were unlocked that day, and multiple interior doors were not secured the day of the shooting. Ah. It was the school's fault. It was the fault of our police and the fault of our teachers for not adequately preparing for a school shooting. I see. So a 77-page report, not a single mention of the guns. No, hang on. We're getting a report from Rafael Sanchez, who's standing by outside Indiana's Greenwood Park Mall. He has some uh, late-breaking news. Rafael? Rafael Sanchez outside of the Greenwood Park Mall on the report of a possible 
active shooter here at the Greenwood Park Mall. As you can see, there's a lot of police activity around the entire mall area. People were evacuated from inside the mall. The mall, I'm told, closes at 6. We're waiting for a police briefing to get more information about what is going on. But what we can see so far is law enforcement that is heavily armed. We can see a number of ambulances. In fact, we could also see police agencies from Martinsville, Southport here uh, responding as well as Greenwood Police. As soon as I get more information about what exactly is happening here, I will share that with you. And Greenwood, Rafael Sanchez, WRTV. Thank you, Rafael. Well, it turns out while Texas politicians were blaming the police and teachers for the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, at the same time, a lone gunman killed three people inside a Greenwood, Indiana mall. Greenwood, Indiana Police Chief James Eisen today held a press conference. Here's uh, what he had to say. The shooter was confronted by our Good Samaritan, who I will identify in just a moment. Uh, the Good Samaritan was armed with a pistol and engaged the uh, shooter as he stood outside the restaurant restroom area firing into the food court. The shooter fired several rounds, striking the suspect. The suspect attempted to retrieve ba retreat back into the restroom and fail, fell to the ground after being shot. We recovered 24 223 rifle rounds shot by the suspect and 10 uh, handgun rounds fired by the Good Samaritan. Fired by the Good Samaritan. The suspect was reportedly killed by what the Greenwood police chief just described as a Good Samaritan who shot the suspect to death. Greenwood police chief Jim Eisen told reporters that he's the real hero of the day. It is the citizen, this is the quote, that was lawfully carrying a firearm in that food court and was able to stop the shooter almost as soon as it began. Yes, almost as soon as it began. You know, three innocent people dead, two injured, but he stopped the shooter. The Good Samaritan stopped the shooter almost as soon as he began. Couldn't stop the shooter from killing three innocent people, injuring two, but the Good Samaritan stopped the shooter almost as soon as he began. On July 1st of this year, Indiana no longer requires a permit for citizens to carry or conceal a handgun. And I'm sure the right will spin this as a triumph, right? Guns save lives. Only three dead, four if you include the shooter, and only two injured because that gun, that, that, that good Samaritan had a gun and he was able to stop it from getting a lot worse because this is what we all want inside a mall, inside a food court, a shootout. Can you imagine if the police showed up while the good Samaritan was hard at work, Samaritan? And the police see two guys inside the food court firing at each other. And, you know, the cops would immediately know who the Good Samaritan with a gun is, right? Because, you know, cops can tell a Good Samaritan just by looking at them. They have, you know, Good Samaritan dar. They, they, they know the Good Samaritan killed the shooter. That's the police chief. That is police chief uh, Jim Eisen, Greenwood police chief.
celebrating the fact that everybody's allowed to carry a concealed weapon in Indiana. Good guy. Good Samaritan. You all know Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan, right? A, a traveler is heading from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets robbed, beaten, stripped naked on the side of the road. Nobody would help him until a Samaritan arrived and shot him to death. I, I think that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, after that shooting, while Uvalde, uh, while the House Committee, the State House Committee, was blaming teachers and police for the slaughter in Uvalde, uh, right after the shooting in Indiana at the Greenwood Mall, nine miles away, there was another shooting yesterday in Beach Grove, Indiana, just nine miles away from that mall shooting where four people were shot, one fatally. That was in Beach Grove, Indiana. The mayor, Dennis Buckley, held a press conference today and said his town, his town had no ambulances available since they were, the ambulances were nine miles away uh, assisting the victims in the Greenwood Mall shooting. So, and there were no good Samaritans in Beach Grove, Indiana uh, to kill the suspect. So uh, the suspect reportedly in this shooting drove away without any Samaritans decent enough to shoot him to death. Uh, we need more good Samaritans in this country. The Samaritans, you need, to, you need to step up, Samaritans. The shooting occurred inside a park. Police are asking residents of Indiana to be on the lookout for a newer model, white Toyota Camry. And if you see that car, please shoot at it. Please kill the person driving it. That is, uh, I think that's what the police want you to do. If you see a newer model, white Toyota Camry, it's probably the guy who shot up Beach Grove, Indiana. So if you have a gun, shoot at, just shoot at any newer model, white Toyota Camry. You'll eventually hit, hit the person who uh, did the shooting. Whew. By the way, New York Times has an interesting story today about Good Samaritans. Apparently, uh, we don't have uh, any, we don't have enough Good Samaritans with guns in America. The Times has this new report today from the, they talk about the, this report from the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Center at Texas State University. Uh, their researchers work with the FBI to keep track of incidents involving active shooters. In a study of about 433 active shooter attacks, now an active shooter attack, this is when a shooter is in a public place firing randomly at people. And we averaged one active shooter a week last year. This is different from a mass shooting. This is an active shooter. An active shooter is in a public space. We have one a week last year. We have one mass shooting a day one active shooter a week. Well, according to the New York Times, about half of the shootings end with the shooter killing himself or fleeing. That's how half of those active shootings end. One third of the shooters end up subdued by the police or killed by the police. Only 22 out of 433 active shooter incidents ended when someone shot back right? A good Samaritan. 
10 of those were off-duty cops or security guards. So out of 433 active shooter incidents, 10 times a regular ordinary citizen carrying a gun took out the shooter. 10 out of 433 active shooter incidents ended with an ordinary citizen firing their weapon. Do you like those odds? You really think it really think that keeps us safe? Adam Langford is a professor at the University of Alabama. He studies mass shootings and he told the Times, quote, we're looking at direct, indisputable, empirical evidence that this kind of common claim that the only thing that stops a bad guy with the gun is a good guy with the gun is wrong. It's demonstrably false. He goes on to say the actual data show that some of these kind of heroic Hollywood moments of armed citizens taking out active shooters are just extraordinarily rare. And, you know, we saw that Sunday. We saw an armed, I'm sorry, a good Samaritan taking out an active shooter, uh, but not before three people were killed and two injured. Uh, it's not like people with guns are stopping active shooters from killing people. They're just, you know, people are still getting shot to death by active shooters. Uh, anyway, this is uh, especially disturbing. Uh, on Saturday night, the Comedy Zone in Charlotte, North Carolina, where comedian Craig Robinson was scheduled to appear, was emptied out after a gunman entered and began firing. Nobody was injured, and uh, the suspect was taken into custody and subdued. That is uh, America today. That is America today. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We're going to talk to Grace Jackson when we come back. Sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation to office hours. Uh, so go to my website. And if you would like to join us in our virtual studio audience and you're watching us live on YouTube right now, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view. It's free. We just It's just the pay-per-view menu. And it'll take you right into the Zoom room, and you can participate in the chat room and raise your hand and ask questions. We'll be back with Grace Jackson. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die 
All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die Oh, that would be Professor Mike Steinel who will be joining us later on in the show. Let me take some of your calls before we go to Grace Jackson. Let's go to Steve, who I believe is in Canada. Hello, Steve. Steve? Hello, Steve. All right, let's go to Ricky. <laughs> Hi, how are you, David? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you really well. Um, and first, I uh, just needed to say, uh, you know, uh, love to you and, and the family and, and very sad to see the passing of your mother. Um, you know, only heard great things about her, David. So uh, that was uh, that was the first thing. Yeah, um, well, I, let, me just, let, me just I, mention, I let me just mention that some of you might know, but my mother passed away. <laughs> and it was uh, very sad. Okay. Thank you for your thoughts, Ricky. And you did send me a note, and I'm I'm going to re be responding to everybody's emails uh, when I have time. Thank you. No problems, mate. You were going to talk about something else. Uh, yeah, I was. One was the chat's disabled, so I thought I'd uh, get that on the show so that we can just show how bad Dan F's doing his job at the moment. He, he deserves a pay cut. The, the chat is um, disabled. Yeah. Yeah, Dan's Dan's going all fascist on us. I think he's been uh, uh, getting all excited. Really, uh, I don't know why yeah. chat has been disabled. What's the point it's, of coming here uh, if you can't chat? I I will turn the hosting over to Dan. There we go. Yay! There we go. And uh, okay. And th okay. We will uh, we will fix that. Yeah, and then I wanted to say something. It's, okay. Um, it's kind of weird at the moment in the UK because we're we're turning into America. Um, not only have we got um, uh, Boris Johnson illegally ruling uh, in this country at the moment, but it's uh, nearly forty degrees Celsius, which I guess in American parlance is like it's nearly over a hundred. Fahrenheit. No, no. In, in America, London. if you tell us it's 40 degrees, we just say, see, it's freezing. 
There's no global warming. <laughs> 40 degrees, that's almost... Well, I'm a climate denier. You know, it's 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 balmy weather. It's just perfect. This is this is the weather I expect every day of my life. You know. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I, I I don't know what to say, but I just needed to get it off my chest. So I thought I'd uh, interrupt your show to say that. So uh, thanks for letting me do that, David. Okay, thank you, Ricky. Uh, let's go to Warren G. Hello, Warren. Hey, David, I'm sorry about your mother. Um, oh, it's yes. good to hear hang, you. Hang on, when people say that, say that again, please. Yes, I'm sorry about your mom. And it's very sad. <laughs> yes, I was just, I was just um, calling to say about the chat, and I texted Hannah earlier um, to oh, see if okay. she knew. So, thank you. Okay, that's it. That's it. Okay, and before we. Go to Grace in Great Britain. Grace, can you turn on your video? We're having some issues today. There we go. There's Grace Jackson. Uh, Steve K., what did you want to talk about very quickly? Okay. Uh, I think he's... All right. I don't know if the chat is working or not. Somebody was playing with the settings. This is when you're little advice about uh, organizations. One person should only be touching certain things. When you have more than one person touching things, uh, it creates chaos. I think we've had other people playing with uh, the settings. So we'll fix that uh, as soon as we can. Grace Jackson joins us. She is the co-host of Literary Hangover. And how are you? It's good to see you again. Hi, David. Good to see you. Good to be back. Um, I my wanted, condolences. Oh, hang on for one second. Cue it. Cue it. Come on. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, how are you holding up with the heat? How bad is it? Uh, well, I've taken the drastic step of uh, wearing a sleeveless shirt today, so it's pretty bad up here in Cumbria. It's um, I think it got to about 32 degrees Celsius here. It's not as hot as it is in London, um, but yeah, pretty pretty warm. And we've also we're also suffering through a horrendous Conservative Party leadership race at the moment. Um, after Boris's untimely demise. So uh, it's just pain all round, really, right now. They're fighting over who's more transphobic at the moment. That's the really? general tenor of the of the discourse. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like Ricky said, I think um, it's this is all kind of part of the gradual but thoroughgoing Americanization of British politics. Um, we now have culture war, but our culture war seems to be focused on the question of trans people and their rights and their identities. And the Conservative Party is just really embracing that as a talking point at the moment, I guess, because it's a good way to not talk about, you know, um, the the horrific cost of living crisis and climate change and all those other very important issues. So, yeah, it's pretty grim right now. So you have inflation in Great Britain and Joe Manchin says it's caused by government spending. So our government spending has gotten so bad, 
it's affecting your prices, apparently. <laughs> yeah, presumably, presumably. Wow. Um, well, Grace Jackson, as I said, is the co-host of Literary Hangover. And cover your ears. She's an expert. I'm telling Grace, she'll get embarrassed. But she is an expert on history and fiction, and especially China. If you're in our Zoom audience, please submit questions in the Q&A for Grace, and we'll take them uh, during the last five minutes uh, of this conversation. Let's talk about uh, Japan and America in light of Shinzo Abe's assassination. And if you could give us uh, a bit of a historical perspective. Abe, am I pronouncing Abe properly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Abe. Um, now, he was the most successful prime minister in Japanese history, at least post-war history. Uh, he was certainly the longest serving and perhaps the most iconic, uh, you could say. Um, he was not without his controversy and was quite a problematic figure, as I hope I will show. Um, to begin with, I just wanted to kind of offer a little bit of, um, yeah, a historical perspective on what happened in Japan and just really kind of historicize this event a little bit because it seemed to come out of nowhere and it was it was quite shocking really um especially as gun violence in Japan is is vanishingly rare owing to how difficult it is to own a gun in Japan and obviously this uh, assassin he fashioned his own gun he made his own gun um and managed to get within 3 meters of of Abe while he was speaking at an event and shot him, basically shot him dead. Um, so, but interestingly, um, political violence is not un unprecedented in Japan. Um, it, it has there, and there are some very interesting precedents. Notably, Abe's grandfather, Kishi, uh, Nobusuke Kishi, who was also prime minister of Japan between 1957. In 1960. Now, Abe comes from a kind of political dynasty. Uh, he's political royalty in Japan, really. Um, now, Kishi himself was, there was an attempt made to assassinate him in 1960. Uh, I believe it was a, a, a right-wing extremist who tried to assassinate him. He lived. It was a, a stabbing. So he survived that. But Kishi, Abe's grandfather, is a very, very tricky figure. I mean, uh, what years are we talking about? What, when did the when did the grandfather? Fifty-seven to sixty was okay. his uh, prime ministership. Right. So, but but his career goes way back to World War Two, um, and in particular the Chinese, uh, the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. So Manchuria is in the north of China. It's the homeland of, of the Manchus, who are the ethnic group who comprised the ruling Qing dynasty, which was the, the last imperial dynasty of China that fell in 1911. So it's up north. Um, and many listeners will be familiar with this history, so I'll just go over it briefly. But... Uh, in 1932, after the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, they founded the Republic of Manchukuo there. Um, and in 1934, it actually became a constitutional monarchy under the control of Japan. 
Now, Kishi, Abe's grandfather, was put in charge of the economy of Manchukuo. And given that Manchukuo was basically a, a kind of project in resource extraction, it, it, this was a very important job for him. Um, he was in charge of the economy, and in that role, he was quite inspired by Nazi economic policy. Um, he called for policies of industrial rationalization to actually eliminate capitalist competition. Um, and so he was given complete control of the economy by the military. And his only task was really to increase industrial growth. Um, and in 1937, he signed a decree calling for the use of slave labor in Manchukuo. And hundreds and thousands of Chinese people were conscripted to work as slaves uh, in their industrial plants there. He was also a notorious racist. Um, the he comfort the women? Did he? That's a whole other story. Um, I'm sure, Yeah, I don't know exactly how he was involved in that, but I'm sure he was. Um, he was certainly involved in the sort of brutalization of, of the Chinese population of Manchukuo, um, enforced labor. And in 1941, he co-signed the declaration of war on the US and Britain. So all this to say, after the war, Kishi was actually imprisoned for three years as a suspected class A war criminal, but he was never actually charged um, because America thought He'd be a great candidate for leading Japan in the post-war period. Really? Funny that. A, yeah, a Nazi weird. sympathizer. Yeah, really strange. I mean, yeah. I don't know, maybe they didn't get the memo or something, but <laughs> um, he, bad intel, just bad intel all around. Uh, By the way, Joe in Norway, the chat, just so you know, Grace, the chat uh -oh. is... Up again, and Joe in Norway said, "This is a long way for Grace to get around to justifying the grandson's assassination." That's oh, not me. That's not the, that long. No, no, but that's not me. That's the the chat room. Well, which, yeah. I, this is this is why I don't read the chat. Um, <laughs> all right, so thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, Anyway, I'm getting there. I'm no, really, no, no. I'm really he, he, he was making a joke. It's fast. When he said long way, that was not, an, believe me. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, uh, so Kishi in the 1950s was part of this move. And by the way, double caveat, I'm not a China, I'm not really a China expert, but I'm certainly not a Japan expert. And the only reason that I feel able to come on here and talk about Japan is because <laughs> we're all idiots. <laughs> This is the podcast. What do we know? This is the David Feldman show. We pick we pick the rolls out of a hat and Grace became our expert on China. That's right. I got really lucky. So I'm just hoping I'll squeak by. But um, he he was part of a general kind of consolidation. I believe he consolidated all of the kind of conservative forces in Japan in the 50s against a rising opposition from the Socialist Party. Um, and so he was able to kind of bring together the kind of different conservative groups and founded the party that Abe uh, represented that's been in power for a long time and just won a huge mandate. So this is 
Abe's heritage. And there's also a connection here to the Unification Church. So people probably will have heard that the reason Abe was assassinated, uh, the reason this man killed him was because um, he was angry that his mother had gone bankrupt because she had given all her money to the Unification Church, which is, is a the, kind of Christian, um, a very kind of right-wing Christian group. It's been called a cult. It's a business empire. It's a very shady organization with links to kind of global anti-communism. It was founded in 1954 in Korea by a charismatic Moon? Uh, Moon, exactly. Reverend Moon, yeah. hence the Moonies is, is what right. people in this church are called. So um, the killer was angry that his mother had basically been fleeced out of all her money by this church. And they have a they have something of a habit of preying on widows, especially. Apparently they would go door to door in Japan as part of their missionary work and tell widows oh you know your husband is um your husband is is dead and we think he's in hell but we know a way to get him into heaven if you only donate this amount of money so tactics like that you know that that's the kind of thing we're dealing with so kishi has connections had connections to the unification church and Abe, his grandson, also had some connections to the church. I'm not exactly sure what they were, but his assassin became aware that Abe had some involvement. I think he had appeared in some videos or appeared in a conference with the Unification Church, and he's, so he decided to, to take it out on Abe. Um, but it's worth stressing that, that this, the Unification Church is truly a global business empire as much as it is a religious organization um it has a lot of influence and a lot of connections with the kind of anti-communist groups that that flourished during the cold war right um well, i should mention the washington times which is a very conservative newspaper is owned by the moonies mm. yeah so they their tentacles reach far and wide here in the United States. I always thought the Moonies were, weren't taken too seriously. He would have these massive marriage ceremonies at Yankee Stadium, and we kind of made fun of Reverend Moon, but uh, he's, he's had some traction, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I even I read that in the 1970s, the House of Representatives um, Subcommittee on International Relations or something uh, actually determined that the Unification Church had been founded by the Korean CIA, <laughs> of all things. Um, and so there are some real connections with intelligence as well as as business and um, yeah, anti-communism. Amazing. So there's there's a lot sort of a lot of different dynamics swirling around this story um, and just things to be aware of. Right. Well, how hard is it to get a gun in Japan? By the way, Moon did time 
uh, for tax fraud right. here in the United the tax States. Tax evasion. Yeah, yeah, he spent I think three years in jail. Something like that. I think he got out on good behavior, but. All the religious leaders like Jerry Falwell and the moral majority came to his defense. Uh, I wanted to go back to England. You know, luckily, something like that would never happen here in the United States. Here is, let me play you a clip of, if I can find it, of former National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn and... uh, This is him talking about the Bible and the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. The last few years, and I think partially because the more that I have studied our nation and what's happening right now, what I have what I have come to the realization of is that we we in fact were created by uh, this, you know, the creator, right? I mean, it's mentioned in the, uh, God, you know, it's mentioned, it's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, right? Yeah. Um, so. Oh, yeah, it is. Very yeah, big time. The Constitution is, is created, and I, and I use that word specifically, is created by uh, the Bible itself. Declaration of Independence yeah. and the, uh, and the Bill of Rights, right? I mean, the 10 Bill of Rights, like I say, the, the, uh, the, the Bill of Rights and the Ten Commandments, right? The Bill of That's Rights good. and the Ten Commandments are the promises that we make to each other. When you really dig in and you, and you list and you read the, ten, the, uh, the Bill of Rights and you list and read the Ten Commandments, those are promises that we make. And then the fulfillment of those promises, you know, are the Constitution and the, and the Bible. That's how we get fulfillment. This is how dangerous religion is. You have General Michael Flynn, who is now uh, made an oath to QAnon. He's was there on the ellipse January 6th. And he's a crazy Christian. These people are incredibly dangerous. And they're liars. Our founding fathers were deists. They asked Alexander Hamilton, how come you never mentioned God in the Constitution? He said, we forgot. I mean, even Madison didn't want uh, religion in the public square. Uh, Anyway, uh, I don't think of the Japanese as a Christian nation, by the way. I guess I'm wrong. Uh, No, I think you're right. Um, I think the number of Christians in Japan is is very, very few, especially compared to Korea, where there there is a sizable Christian population. Um, I think the the extent of the unification church's influence is really in this kind of like cult-like activity where they will kind of prey upon people, um, go door to door. A lot of their funding actually comes from those activities, but I don't think it's a widespread belief. Certainly not. Um, It's very niche. Yeah. It, It just seems to be wherever there's fascism, there's Christianity. It just seems to, at least in the West, just seems to be a part of the uh, equation. Uh, you have a new speaker. His name is Lindsey Hoyle. Oh, he's been around a little while. I think he's been there a, a year or two, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me play him. Shut up a minute. <laughs> What's he 
Give the word in. to the honourable gentleman. I will not tolerate such behaviour. If you want to go out, go out now, but if you stand again, I will order you out. Make your mind up. Either shut up and get out. I warn the honourable member that if they protest in carrying out to Shut up a minute. Does somebody want them? Do what wants. Does somebody want? <laughs> he completely <laughs> loses it. He, I don't think he's as good as was it Burke or Burko? John Burko. Yeah. Order. Sit down. You want me in the future? I now warn of the honourable members that if they persist in refusing to comply with my order to withdraw, I shall be compelled to name both of them, which may lead to them being suspended from the House. Right, names. To ensure that the honourable member complies. Can it? Where's the names? I order! Shut it. Neil Hanvey, I am now naming you and Kenny McCaskill to leave this chamber. Sergeant, deal with them. Deal with them. Deal with them. Just sit down. Out. No. Sergeant at arms, escort them out. You know, Grace, when I watched that in the past, that kind of behavior. I always said, this is why you need a queen. This is why you need royalty. It allows the children to misbehave in the parliament, but event, you know, if it gets really out, they can act out because they know there's a king or a queen to, you know, <laughs> make them behave. Uh, how frightening is that now when, when you look at how dysfunctional your politics has become? That, that isn't comforting anymore, is it? Um, <clears throat> frankly, those kind of rowdy parliamentary theatrics are not, I'm not really faced by them. What worries me more is the sort of backroom dealings, the internal kind of party workings. The fact is that um, in this Tory le- candidate leadership race, um, the next prime minister is being given to us uh, and they've just decided to sort of stop doing televised debates because now it's it becomes a real internal party matter and it becomes a, a question of you know who can kind of who can go furthest to the right um, to please whoever these backbenchers are who want really right-wing policies in the UK and so that yeah I'm, I'm kind of into that yelling and screaming in parliament but when it comes to um, the more nefarious goings on, that's what really worries me. To be continued. You'll come back next Monday, I hope. Uh, sure. Good, good. Grace Jackson is co-host of Literary Hangover. And what is your Twitter? Grace Jackson, right? Uh, it's just Grace Jackson, yeah. You got yeah, it. On- you got that handle. Thank you, Grace. Before you go, people are as demoralized in England as we are here in the United States. Mm. Yeah, 
I would I would say so. So it's not Biden's fault. <laughs> it's it's neo it's neoliberal. It's it's that's what's causing it, right? The, that. Yeah, I mean, I think our two countries are bound together at this point, uh, no matter what, and we're going to go down together. So. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. On that note. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're keeping it optimistic today. Thank you, Grace. <laughs> I'll, I'll, hopefully Thank I'll see you, you Wednesday. I think we're going to start meeting again on Wednesday. Thank you, Grace right. Jackson. Let's go to Mexico where Jason Miles is standing by and Pascal Robert, who I think is in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. They are co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. And if you're in our Zoom audience, submit your questions in the Q&A and we'll take the last five minutes to uh, ask your questions let me just uh, make sure I, uh, okay. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I got to all. Were there any questions, Grace, that I didn't get to uh, in the Q&A? Uh, I can get to them later. I don't think so. I think we're good, actually. Okay, very good. Not in the Q&A, yeah. Great. Hello, Pascal? Yes. David, how are you? Uh, good. You seem uh, out of frame. Do I? Yeah. And there's Jason, who I didn't get to see in New York City, but I heard it was a lot of fun. Um, I know. I heard it was great. And Pascal, you you were not there. You, there, was, there was a big show. I think Pascal is frozen. No, um, he's, back. he's back. You're back. He's back. He's back. The, the demoralization that's going on around the world. Uh, we don't have an economic system, certainly not neoliberalism, uh, that can address, if not, it's exacerbating all these problems. It's, it, 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 do you sense this is a tipping point or with the weather? No, you don't see a tipping point, Jay. Nope. Why not? Nope. Um, I think people are kind of vested in uh, the idea of what politics looks like right now with with good guys and bad guys. Um, and I think you see that in things like the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade. Um, as many people got up in arms and as many protests as we saw when that ruling came down. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as many people as you saw protesting when that ruling came down for years, there had been states that were, were actually charging women with manslaughter, falling downstairs, car accidents. Um, maybe one of the bigger cases a few years ago is when a woman got in an argument with another woman while she was pregnant. A pregnant woman got shot in the stomach and the, the child died. She then got convicted of, of manslaughter. There was a big public outcry and, and the DA ended up, I believe, dropping the charges. Um, and then if you're in the system or if you're on services, your uterus hasn't belonged to you at all. Nobody's talking about that. No one. I mean, there's definitely a small segment of of the population that was actually trying to bring these things up. But I think for the majority of, of people, Roe, much like the Second Amendment, is, is sacrosanct as flimsy as Roe has always been, no one really cared about as flimsy as it was. And now we're kind of in this mode of either pack courts, 
get the right judges in. Um, and that seems to be the way people view politics. Once my guy gets in, then we'll write this wrong. Um, to Ray Reed and I were having a very long <laughs> conversation where we're talking over each other as I'm working on the next script for a video essay where I'm, I'm talking about we're living in a moment of kayfabe, which is the, the wrestling code in, in you in comedy. Yeah, explain that. So, explain kayfabe. Well, well, kayfabe is is this. Oh, let me. I think you're having a problem here because of this. Kayfabe is this idea that you never break character. Right. You, you never uh, explain to the audience what's really going on. So you may be working out a bit with someone and, um, you know, you and, the, you and the person doing the bit know that it's a bit, but the audience themselves don't know it's a bit, right? Right. And that's pretty much what wrestling is. Wrestling is one big bit. And when you think about the rise of Sanders in 2015, 2016, um, and kind of this political awakening for a lot of people. Um, Sanders, in my opinion, broke kayfabe with his campaign. Um, because he talked about the failures of his own party, the Democratic Party, as well as, you know, uh, the failures of the Republican Party. Right. Um, so there's this, this moment where everyone's kind of awake, right, mm -hmm. to the folly of both parties. And then you get, you know, the kibosh on Sanders and the rise of Trump um, kind of he, much like Vince McMahon's character in the WWE, who when a lot of things were, were coming out on him, um, a steroid scandal and the... There's some other wrestling stuff where people were actually seeing the inner workings, how the sausage was made. He doubles down on his Mr. McMahon character of the evil empire. And we just kind of fall back into um, kayfabe. And I think that's kind of where we are. So it's hard to break out of that cycle um, when you have the, the characters playing their roles. Um, Pascal? As well. Right here. Yes. Speaking to Jason and Kayfave, there's no Kayfave if you're a neoliberal banker or Wall Street broker. There's no role playing. You know exactly what you want from your politics and your government, and you get it. You don't fall prey to Second Amendment rights or abortion or the rights of transgender people. I, I'll push back on that because okay. all those people actually went ahead. If Citibank said we will pay for any sort of abortion for our, our uh, employees that are in a state that's outlawing abortion. No, I mean, everyone definitely plays their role, even if their role is heal. But that's not what Citibank, that's not what Starbucks cares about. They protect capital. So if you exactly. think about the, the facade that you're covering up is capitalism. We right. never talk about capitalism. Bernie Sanders touches on the edge of capitalism in his run in 2016, which is, again, showing how the sausage is made, if you will. But I would push back saying that, you know, these people aren't playing a role. I don't think it's um, 
conspiratorial as Joe Biden and Donald Trump sitting down together at a dinner table writing out a script. Um, you know, if you read Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, it is a spectacle. It is political theater. But both actors do have to have some sort of true believing. You know, it's not as simple as pro wrestling. I'm just using it as kind of an analogy to explain this idea that both parties, all interests will protect capital at all costs. So you will be arguing uh, for things. You know, that's why we're getting a rise. You know, sorry to sound like I'm jumping around and I'll shut up now. No, um, no. You're getting a rise in even uh, racial politics again. I mean, that's kind of what is, I wouldn't say the death nail to the Sanders campaign, but it really hurt was the idea that he didn't have a quote unquote black agenda. Um, so free college and healthcare for everyone even had a housing plan. None of that was a quote unquote black agenda. And, and now you have kind of the rise of even identity politics, intersectionality, you know, look at San, look no further than San Francisco. Um, my home area where you have a black female mayor coming down on the quote unquote white progressives, white socialists, even um, that were the real problem that were the real impediment that, that were causing homelessness. You know, how can a district attorney be the cause for homelessness and crime? And even though he had diversion programs in play, he is replaced, non-elected official, mind you, he's replaced by a non-elected official, mind you, who is a woman of color. And the first thing she's coming down on is a lot of his decisions that had to do with um, um, undocumented people that were, that were convicted that he had diversion programs for so they wouldn't get deported. Um, and she fired people that part of their job was to go back and look at some wrongful conviction cases and, and relook at evidence and get people out of prison that had been in there for, for decades for crimes they didn't commit. When you look at South America, so, when you look at Latin America, what's happening in Chile, Bogota, uh, Colombia now, Lula, hopefully, uh, in uh, Brazil, when you have people on the left, I, am I correct in saying these are real leftists who are getting elected? Compared to the Americas, but the United States. So are they running on class? Are they saying other things are important, but this is class warfare? Or do they have to address identity politics as well? It's a very, this is a very, very, very perceptive question. We had a Jamal Baraka, former Green Party vice presidential candidate, on our show last Saturday, who lives in Colombia and is a very close friend of the current vice presidential uh, candidate who won the election recently. And he was saying that in Latin and South America, because the material consequences of life are so serious, you can't be deluded by the mechanisms of capitalism into not having a left. In other words, the material reality of life don't give them the luxury to neglect having an oppositional politics that challenges the way in which the system is going to eventually affect people adversely. Is there identity politics? Of course. But the thing is, though, the class contradictions are so sharp, it allows for them to have the kind of politics where they can be more direct and blunt in addressing what the material challenges are that are facing them 
while we have, you know, in America, people making less than $15 an hour minimum wage aspiring to be millionaires because all they want to do is watch the Super Bowl or whatever sports event and are being bombarded with images that's taking them away from understanding what the core of the problem is. Right, right. How far can you get in Latin America as a leftist leader before they Allende you? Lula succeeded. Lula got, Lula lifted a couple hundred thousand people out of poverty in Brazil. How many? It was like 40 million or so out of poverty. I mean, he also had to make concessions, right? Pascal, you're well aware of this. I mean, mean, listen, not only Allende, uh, Aristide in Haiti. I mean, there are millions of examples of if you are left of the status quo and you're talking about redistributing resources to poor people in your country, they're going to come for you. Especially if you don't play ball, right? I mean, look at Hugo Chavez. I think that's another example in Venezuela. I think a lot of people jump to Lula. People forget about uh, Hugo Chavez and what he was able to do in Venezuela. Also, but is he a real? I, I don't think of Chavez as a real leftist force. Right. I think of him as a, as a a faux populist out of the military. Has he provided? Well, he's I think dead. Chavez definitely had a lot of. anti-poverty measures during his administration. He was very popular. He used used his charisma and his popularity to push forth the kind of uh, the the Bolivarian revolution that was popular in the masses. Uh, I think that he was reacting to a coup that that allowed him to strengthen his base with the military that I think worked to his advantage. But I wouldn't necessarily discredit him Oh, not at all. His Benefides he he, he the rewrote the all. Constitution to add in the African Venezuelans and indigenous people. He was trying to institute, uh, 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 what do you call it? The Andrew Yang was trying to do universal basic income okay. for women that didn't work um, because that really would equal out the playing field, right? Because if you're stuck with a man that is kicking your ass, it's really hard to leave. But when you know you have a, a, a basic income that you can do it on your own, um, it definitely changes that situation. So, so it is conceivable, Pascal, for the military to take over and provide a, a left-wing economy? I was Peru. brainwashed. We've had this conversation Peru. on our show before. It's it's not impossible. It's rare because, as we know, the military— Castro. Castro comes out of the military as well. Well, he reshaped the military. The, la- the military is usually a force of reaction in developing in third world well, countries. Hang, hang, for- Ca- hang on, Castro wasn't part of Batista, wasn't a general in Batista's army. No, that's right. He didn't come out of the military, but he he reshaped the military after taking power. Yeah. But Latin well, America is very different than the United States when you look at their military and the way it's integrated in with the people, especially with what Chavez was doing in Venezuela. You can look at uh, what. Turkey, you could Chavez. almost say. Uh, in Turkey, the at one time the military was a, considered a moderating influence. Uh, wasn't uh, against a theocracy. That's probably American propaganda. I mean, I was. I mean, per- Peru is probably one of the better places to look at when it comes to a military general uh, taking power of a country and instituting 
more um, um, democratically social reforms, but not being a true democratic socialist. Uh, I can't remember the president's name. Do you remember the president's name, Pascal? Fujimora? No. <laughs> Way before that. This is in the 50s and 60s. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. David, before I forget, I want to give you condolences for the death of your mom. I'm sorry I didn't bring that up. Oh, thank you. Hang on. Every time somebody says that I have to do something, it's... Uh, hang on. That's my little... That's kind of harsh. <laughs> I know, but I do it to other people, so when it happens to me, I have to do it to thank you uh, uh, very much. Uh, she was... Uh, a great woman. Her, her politics, uh, she lived in fear during the 50s. That her wow. Yeah. Her, uh, yeah. Uh, so I was talking to Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. If a candidate like Bernie, and I think we played some clips of Bernie on the show today. I watched him. He's... Right. You saw him yesterday on ABC. I saw I saw the clips. He's pretty sharp for 80. I wish I were that sharp. He's sharper than the guy we have right now. Uh, My mother, my mother is sharper than the guy we have right now. (laughs) Uh, So what would have happened? I mean, can you get elected? This is what I asked Alan Minsky. I said, Can somebody get elected president saying, look, I know all these issues are important, uh, but I'm putting them on the back burner until we I I am going to speak for the 99 percent. This is going to be class struggle. We're going to redistribute wealth and then we can address everything else. But the first 100 days of my presidency will be about wealth redistribution, because when you get elected president, you have 100 days to get something done. So I'm not going to get bogged down in identity. I'm not even going to get bogged down in climate change. I'm going to get bogged down in the redistribution of wealth, changing the tax code, taking money and therefore power away from the ruling class. Then we can, after that 100 days, uh, then we can address the other issues because we can't solve climate change until we take all the money away from ExxonMobil. Uh, can you get elected talking that way? Or would there you just there's be too much of a pushback either from the voters or the people who are in charge? I think the media mechanisms in the echo chamber in America make it very difficult for us to have that kind of politics. Yeah. I mean, that's back to that original question you asked that are we at a tipping point? And, you know, you can you can ask that question every election, probably since the 60s, because there was always a tipping point. Right. At what point were black people going to say, look, <laughs> we need civil rights. You had rebellions in the streets. Right. I mean, the question is, are we in a, a moment of crisis? Yes, but when haven't we been in a moment of crisis over the last 50 years? Right. And the question, I think that what we're seeing, we had a good guest on our show talking about a moment of hyper-politics. I think the problem isn't that things have gotten worse. I think people are paying more attention. Mm-hmm. 
what is but, happening is that people are paying more attention because we have online. Everyone has a phone. Right. You get instant images of what you're seeing. The cops shoot somebody. Five minutes, you see a video. You got a fire in England. Everyone's got a video immediately. Everyone is connected and wired to everything instantaneously. So the tragedy of life and the shock that comes from it is transported to the consciousness of humanity in seconds. Fantastic. Fantastic. What's, that, that's what's fascinating. What's fascinating about that is regardless of the images people are seeing, the solutions given and the conversation has had that is being had hasn't changed in decades. Rodney King got his ass whooped for all to see in 1991. And we're still having the same conversation about law enforcement reform. Right. And we're not having conversations about people's material conditions. Right. Right. What are, we're still having the same conversations about guns whenever there's a school shooting. And again, we're not talking about people's material conditions. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think everybody's playing their part. And us in the media sometimes are part of it as well because we get equally as fired up. These are emotional issues for people. You know, Abortion is an emotional issue for people that it's, it's going to rile up a certain part of the democratic party base to come out and vote when they haven't really done anything for people in, in controlling the Senate and the, uh, but it's a crisis. I would not deny you that it's a moment of crisis. It's a serious crisis. We're in a period of a crisis of legitimacy. Government is failing everywhere bipartisanly. Not just in America. In England, the government is collapsing. In Sri Lanka, the government is collapsing. In Haiti, the government has collapsed. In the United States, the government can't govern. I mean, what what, what are we getting out of our major metropolitan areas like San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles from our mayors and our state and local governments? You're getting more tough-on-crime laws. Different from the 80s and 90s, because there's no gang problems to use as scare tactics, but these tough on crime laws are coming from life of, or quality of life crimes with the unhoused. It's the blight of homelessness that most people don't want to see because it does make you feel very helpless, right? And there's no real solutions being offered. There's kind of pie in the sky. Well, everyone needs a house. That's not going to happen tomorrow. Let's just be realistic. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But most people want to put that problem away in a box. Can you build some sort of housing form with a big fence so I don't have to see it? That's what they do in the Bay Area. Literally tough sheds. Literally, like the kind you get at Home Depot. And a big fence so you can't see in. But the government and that's the solution. does work, just not for us, right? It's a cliche to say this. If you're a, a billionaire, the government works for you. It distracts the the voters from focusing on the source of all their immiseration. This system does work for the people who control it. It's doing exactly what it needs to, to do. You have a president who pretends he's going to pass a climate change bill and just can't seem to move one man. But for Joe Manchin, we could save the planet. 
And he, as you've talked about earlier, Manchin plays the role as the heel <laughs> and is rewarded financially for that. And Biden plays the innocent, you know, I tried, just evil Joe Manchin. But if you're at the top, it's all working perfectly for you. That's exactly, was it kayfabe? Is that how it's pronounced? It, kayfabe. Yeah. Kayfabe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, theater is going to play itself out. Chris Hedges often talks about uh, what he sees as, you know, political burlesque or political theater. Um, and I think the burlesque aspect is what you get with news media. Russiagate is a perfect example. Um, a lot of people got invested in that. January 6th is another example. People really get invested in that. But what scares me is the fallout of watching too much theater. When you watch too much pro wrestling, what do you end up wanting to watch? Real combat. You watch fighting. That's real. And what we're seeing is like, okay, I'm tired of watching the, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world rile me up and the Rachel Maddow's of the world pissing me off, you get January 6th. You get school shooters. You get things like swatting, which is really frightening <laughs> when you think about the people have died from this kind of shit, right? People right. get tired of, the, of playing pretend and they want real action. Um, and, and that's the quote-unquote tipping point, but I don't even think much is going to happen from there because... As you see so much attention placed on January 6th, if anything like that was even to begin to happen again, you probably would see law enforcement open fire and no one's going to weep. Nobody's going to complain. No. Right. No. What do because you... you've shown them to be, quote unquote, deplorables. Right. What are you worried about? The same things you've always been worried about. You don't see this as a Pascal. Do you you do you see? I'm worried about the economic sanctity of our of our system. I I think that neoliberalism is in crisis, but I don't see an option being presented that is more humane. I think that it can get more bloody and ugly before it gets better, and I'm worried about it making that turn. That's I'm looking at housing costs. I'm looking at, you know, uh, interest rates. I'm looking at the, the way in which the Fed is reacting. I'm looking at the way in which this inflation is affecting things. Um, when I'm hearing economists that I trust say that they've never seen the economy this bad, it's making me worry. I'm looking at the fact that you can go and get groceries from a, from a supermarket, spend $100 and literally not buy any meat. Right. Just buying, you know, vegetables and fruit and bread. And yeah, I was watching that right winger Charlie Kirk yesterday, and he's talking about people are Americans are starving and they're going to break the law. And they're talking about food riots. And uh, that's if America, Americans could be convinced to do things uh it, when there's no bread, uh, that's you get gunned I mean, down. We literally had a listen. We had a period of time where women couldn't get baby formula for their kids. Man, this is the richest, supposedly richest country in the world. And you know who whose fault I, I, it is? I have to keep my ear out right now because 
the municipality that provides water to me shuts off our water. Californians will always get theirs. They may pay more for it. They're going to get theirs. They're going to water their lawns. But my water gets shut off. I just found out that there's a well under my house. And my landlord showed me she didn't want to, basically she didn't want to be on the hook for well water. So there's private companies throughout this region that provide water to fill your well. And I'm waiting for the private water man to come fill my well so I can have water because the last two months, as Pascal knows, I've been without water for more days than I've been with water. And that's the Colorado River that provides you with, and people in California are using that water for lawns. Mm -hmm. They don't think twice about it. If you see the poverty in a place like Tijuana, um, it's it's disgusting to think that, you know, someone's just watering their lawns and chilling. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford private water. This isn't drinking water. This is like clean yourself, clean your stuff water. Um, What about drinking water? Drinking water, everybody has to pay for There's private companies all over the the city that sell you water. Um, There's no drinking water? From the municipality? No. I don't think you want to drink the water in the municipality. Yeah, yeah. I won't won't be good for me if I drink the water. Uh, Let's take some questions from the audience. Warren G. wants to know, where did Jason get those Han Solo and Chewbacca sneakers that you wore to the live show in Brooklyn? eBay. On eBay. Okay. Uh, Let's... uh, (laughs) Thanks for noticing my my Han Solo and Chewbacca sneakers. Rodrigo in Mexico. Hi. uh, I wanted you to talk about uh, how do we explain to people uh, who are who vote conservative that the same people who do all these anti-trans stuff are the same people who have refused to raise the minimum wage since 2007 and the same people who etc 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 Oh, como estás? Como estás? I would never have met how we reach out how we reach out to right wingers to try to get them to explain that all these people who are making all these anti-trans noises are the same people who are denying us a public goods governance. I think the first step is to not talk about the trans stuff first, but to talk about why we need a public goods governance and why focusing on the trans stuff is a distraction and an attempt to stop us from getting that. Not that the rights of trans people are not important, but that the that no one is debating that issue in good faith. <laughs> that issue is being debated under under the guise of stopping us from us of talking about why we can't have bills that provide us public good services as a society. Right. This is my quarrel with Dave Chappelle. He just got a Emmy nomination for the closer where he goes after transgender 
people. And the question is, you have such a big platform. Why are you choosing to go after transgender people? I mean, is he saying they're bad people that need to be eliminated? Uh, well, he's talk he's saying gender is fact and he's a, a turf. Why do you ultimately, why do you care? Uh, That's the better question. Dave Chappelle has never told black people to go out and start a revolution and they did it. Uh, Dave Chappelle has never told anyone to go beat up trans people and they did it. So why does anyone care what Dave Chappelle says about anything? He's not news. There's a huge difference between Dave Chappelle and Rush Limbaugh. There's a huge difference between Dave Chappelle and even Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan literally, literally says doesn't like trans people, especially trans athletes. He thinks it's a huge problem when it's not. They're not the same. I, 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 I don't like these better. wedge issues in the way they're framed because I know it's pseudo politics. Yeah. What do you mean? Dave Chappelle, is, Dave Chappelle is mad that people don't tiptoe around black men the way they tiptoe around trans people. That's ultimately what it is. And once you understand that, then you just go, eh, fuck that guy. Right? I mean, it's ultimately what it is. It's, it's 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 a perverse reverse oppression. It's 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 not oppression Olympics. It's oppression jealousy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. That ultimately, that's all that shit is. It's, a, is it's, it's I'm sick, mad, man. It's really sick. Get tiptoed around. I mean, remember, Dave Chappelle was in the spinoff to Home Improvement, which was racist as shit. That's why it only lasted like ten episodes. And as someone that has lived in the the entertainment world, the 90s weren't the most, you know, racially sensitive time um, to, be, to be writing bullshit. And I'm sure he feels that he had to suffer through a good amount of bullshit to get to where he is. And he's like, well, why doesn't anyone else have to, have to walk this gauntlet like I had to walk? It's, it's what Pascal, it's just fucking silly jealousy that you hear from old successful people. I believe in my soul you have sat around with your old school vet homies and have heard similar um, conversations where you bitch about these kids don't have it like we did when we were doing A, B, C, and D. Right. But the question is, does it belong on as big a platform as Netflix? There, there are certain jokes you tell to your friends in a car and then there are <laughs> things you say publicly but uh mm -hmm. who's on your show this week yeah dan Mello tomorrow talking about his very interesting article about hope and its place in left politics then we have our news roundup on thursday we're going to be talking about the affairs of the day and um i don't know who we have for saturday Jason. saturday we have alfie um and we're going to be talking uh dating in the left yeah Dating on the left. Dating yeah. On the you left. Imagine how exciting that subject is going to be. There. That yeah. is going to, for me, it's just going to be fun. And I already have trigger warning shows lined up for Pascal. C could you fall in love? <laughs> could you fall in love with somebody who was a right wing? I couldn't do it. How, how big is a booty? <laughs> <laughs> this is at least being intellectually honest. That's the question that, that I ask all the time. So. And and when do you discuss the hills have eyes with 
uh, Professor Burgess? Uh, tomorrow afternoon, me, Burgess, and, and Tere Reed are going to talk uh, horror movies, which is my favorite thing in the world uh, to do is talk horror movies with these guys. And then we just make fun of Ben Burgess for the rest of the show. Oh, good. Jason Miles and Pascal Robert are co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. Thank you, fellas. I always look forward to talking with you. Before you kick us off, I just want you to know that Burgess and I, and hopefully Pascal and I, will be back in New York in October. I'm going to get my hug. You'll get your hug. You'll get it. I, there was right. a re- I couldn't go. I wanted to go, but I was there was stuff going on. All right, David. Thank you, Pascal. It's great to see you. Thank you, Jason. Bye-bye. You're listening Peace. to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now if you'd like to sit in our Zoom room and ask questions. Coming up at 7.30, we have Professor Greg Barak. He's the author of... Criminology on Donald Trump, as well as 20 other books on crime, justice, media, violence, criminal law, homelessness, and human rights. We have about 20 minutes to kill, so I'll take your calls in about five minutes. But first, more music from our favorite composer, Professor Mike Steinel. We'll be back right after this. I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you. I'm a pig for love. My appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none. I'm a pig for love
Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. Welcome back. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Professor Greg Barak. And I'll take your calls. If you're in our virtual studio audience, raise your hand. I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. And if you're watching us live on YouTube and you want to talk to me, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view, and it'll take you right into the Zoom room where you can join the conversation. Uh, let me look at uh, the chat room on Zoom. Uh, okay, let's go to, uh, they're talking about uh, home improvement and Dave Chappelle. I don't, was Dave Chappelle? I don't think Dave Chappelle was on home improvement, Mark. Uh, I think there was a, a show that came on after home improvement. And I think it was a show with Dave Chappelle. Uh, let's go to St. Christopher of Hitchens in Seam, England. Hello. Good Sam. evening, uh, David, once again. And thank you for that suspiciously terse and grudging introduction. Um, we need to speak about your mother again. Uh, Hang on. I'm having a technical issue here. Hang on. So we. Hang on. Don't, don't leave me. What happened? I'm, getting, I'm having uh, Hang on. I can't hear you, St. Christopher. He's an incompetent. Are you, are you still there? Oh, sorry. Hello. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Hi there, yes. Okay. Uh, we need to speak about your mother again. Oh, my God. Yes. What's um, happening there? What is firstly, she doing up there? Yeah. You're, you're calling from heaven, right? I hope. Correct. Yes. Okay. Correct, yes. Okay. Before we actually get into your mother... um. You may recall last week I asked you to send me a list of uh, emails I could use to send the returns policy. <laughs> and uh, I'll have to go through this list because I think you're actually, I think you are pulling, you're having a bit of a wag at me here. So, uh, so I've received the list of emails you sent me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I've, got a, I've got a feeling you're paying me somewhat. Well, um, I, I, I like you, you can't, hang on for one second. Gmail. You can't take what? you can't take my mother, and then send her back. It doesn't as far I, it doesn't work that way as I understand it. Well, if you allow me access to a functioning email, <laughs> I will send you the, the actual policy, which will spell out in in fine detail how, how we can come about uh, sending her back. Um, <laughs> what? What? Come on! I mean, they're they're. Trillions upon trillions of humans in heaven. How could one woman be that disruptive? As I explained last week, uh, our Lord and Savior has only one passion in life, which distracts him from all of the universe's problems, and that's uh, mowing the lawn. <laughs> and uh, she's mowing the lawn out there. You know, your mother has taken that job from God, which is quite a feat. Mm -hmm. And uh, she let God have a go last week, and she said he did it wrong, which is, <laughs> again, quite a feat. 
given he is the the so, lord uh, he doesn't take so me, he doesn't take criticism well uh, he's perplexed he's never taken criticism before <laughs> this, this, this is the new this is this is a new uh, thing for him he just doesn't know what to do so us uh patrons shall we put it the patrons uh, yeah. we're out a bit because uh, you know we were once mortal mm-hmm. and uh, we're aware of these things. So um, let me go through this. Brief. You sent me one email and there's been no reply. I like bigbutts at gmail.com. Now, David, yes, that does not sound genuine. Um, but my email address said, that I gave you, yes, you also sent me. DS at nuts.com again. These <laughs> nuts. At, yeah, yeah, these nuts. Does not sound genuine at all. Mm-hmm. And this is this one was really taking the biscuit. Uh, Trump is my potus.com. Which <laughs> uh, doesn't sound right at all. Uh, so um, if I if I have you if I have your word that he's genuine, we can we can uh, see we only have one laptop up here, you see. There's only one laptop in the whole of heaven. And uh, there's actually only one website as well. Is there, and, and on that website, there's only one search, and it's uh, Pornhub. Mm. And the, the search is uh, Celestial Bodies. <laughs> um, that's I thought Pornhub was see. heaven. Well, that's why you need one channel. Yeah. That's right. So um, we, we tried a number of things. Last week, we had Tony Sirico sent up. Uh, you may have noticed he'd, uh, he came up a sorter out, and uh, that hasn't done the trick. Who who did you send? And, who did uh, you send up? Who? Uh, Tony Sirico from. Uh, oh, Polly Walnuts. That's his fictional name. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't straighten out my mother. Not a chance in heaven. <laughs> uh, and uh, all we're waiting for now is for. Um, if I Trump to make it through the customs gate at St. Peter Terminal, and uh, we'll see how that goes. She might straighten her out with some sort of business acumen, and uh, she may be some sort of kin. Uh, there may be a kinship there that may... Uh, oh, I don't think out, so. I, I think the universe, the eternal life, eternity isn't big enough for my mother and Ivana uh, Trump. I think my mother... I mean, come on. Give me a break. One of them's going to well, have to go. I think that might have been well, the thunder outside. My mother yelling at Ivana <laughs> Trump. Well, I'll try these emails one more time. I mean, if I find these are faulty, uh, you may have the Lord himself get in touch. And uh, that won't be very pleasing. But we need to get that returns policy down to you uh, within 30 days, actually. So, uh, uh he who must be obeyed uh, knows, uh, he, heaven knows what's going to happen if we don't get it sorted soon. Anyway. All right. And yeah, how, how are things same. in heaven in terms of the heat? It's quite it's pleasant here. It's heaven. It's quite, uh, anybody else would call it dull. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's quite pleasant here. I hear in my old uh, haunt, it's a bit, uh, a bit hellish. Okay, which is which would suit me fine, but uh, yeah. right now, you're anyway. Saint Christopher of Hitchens. Before you go, you yes. di- you died, Saint Christopher of Hitchens, an atheist. 
Yeah, well. Would yes. you like to? Anti-theist. Yes. What? An anti-theist. Right. Yes. Now that you're a saint, now that you've talked to the big guy, would you like to retract what you said? Mm, well, it's a bit like free will in, in, in as much as uh, you've no option. Uh, so, but to have it. So, um, there's not a great deal I can say. But um, I like your sense of humor. I mean, giving me a sainthood mm -hmm. is right up there. It's very good. Uh, so, And what are you the patron you, saint of? Drinking? No, I'm the patron saint of a small town in Shropshire called Hitchens. <laughs> and, uh, but who do we... got the spelling wrong. He assumed my name's Hitchens, and Hitchens is Hitchens, and he thought it would be a humorous piece of wordplay. That's that's how the fellow works, you see. I see. Okay. And what kind of people pray to you? The people just of the town of Hitchens? Mainly atheists, would you believe? <laughs> um, mainly atheists, yeah. The patron saint of atheists. Yes. You're the patron saint Indeed. of atheists. Yes. I'm the patron saint of atheists. He gave me the role for keeping a vast number of people off his back while he was trying to do the lawn. So to my listeners who don't believe in God, they now have a yep. pa they have a patron saint who they can pray to. That's correct. That's correct. And it's me. Saint Christopher. And I think they sort of do that anyway. They did that while I was alive, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I'm dead. You know, it's the, the full deal, the full I am. Well, he is. You know what I mean? All right. Well, can you give God a yeah. message for me? I'll try and pass it on, but... Uh, he seems to be struggling with a hubcap on a Ford Fiesta GTI from 1983. Uh, it's my mother's cobalt car. Cobalt blue. That's my mother's car. All oh, right. <laughs> Superb. She she took it Superb. with her. We've been looking for Excellent. that. Excellent. Well done. Excellent. Well, uh, the car got to heaven. The car. Apparently made... so. Apparently so. <laughs> I wasn't aware your mother would have bought a Ford Fiesta. A uh, uh, very economical car and uh, quite easy to maintain, as I remember, right. especially the 1983 model. I just never. I have no knowledge of these. I didn't think her car would make it to heaven with her. But why is that flat wheel? I just, I it was not a particularly nice car. It was a bit of oh, a, well. a bit of a lemon, but uh, <laughs> my message to God is she's yours now, keeper. Uh, I think we're going to have to. I think we're going to have to go to small claims court. I'm, I'm not sure that will roll. I'm not sure that will. Roll. He has sent me to you after all. Well, anyway, yes. right. to be continued, Saint Christopher yes. Hitchens. Thank you. Super. Yes. Goodbye and I. God be less. God be less. Let's go to. <laughs> God be less. God be less. Let's go to Randall and. Uh, not Pittsburgh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, right, Randall? That's it. Harrisburg, Randall in Harrisburg. How Thanks are for you? another great show. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for another great show. Uh, can you tell us the story of how you befriended Ethan Hershenfeld? How did I befriend Ethan Hershenfeld? He was doing stand-up around town. I think we met maybe on Fugelsang's show. I think that's how it worked. And then he said to me, you know who would be great? My dad. You should have my dad on the show. And we had him on together. 
And aren't they great? Aren't they fantastic? Oh, yeah, yeah. Always always a blast listening to those two. Yep. Yeah. I think they model uh, good behavior between fathers and sons. It's very difficult for parents to get along with their children because the children tend to be very uh, disrespectful. Uh, and so I, I like the way they get along. Do you have kids? Randall? No, no kids. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's a great time to be raising kids in, in this country and in, in this world. Especially with the way kids talk to their parents. The, the, the kids seem to hold uh, their baby boomer parents responsible for the mess that their baby boomer parents created. And, you know, even though we were short-sighted and bought into a lot of bullshit and destroyed the economy, the country, and the planet, I don't think our children should be as disrespectful to us as they are. Uh, I'm picking up a lot of resentment from uh, younger people for the, the shape of the planet. And even, it is. Yeah, it is our fault, but, you know, and you're right for hating us, but uh, it's, it, you know, get over it. Boy, if I were in my 20s, I, I don't think I, I would, I don't, I, I don't even want to tell you what I would do to people my age. I want to do it to people my age. And uh, now you're a lobbyist, correct? For good government in Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah. I put some hours in, uh, you know, contacting legislators. And uh, we're going to be sending an email out to you again and, and hopefully get the rabbi back on the show. You spoke with Rabbi Michael Pollack, and uh, we wanted to check in again if you're willing to have us. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Dr. Oz, is he... Uh going to be the next senator from your state? I don't know. Uh, GOP doesn't have uh, a lot of luck with statewide races in this state, but they got Toomey in. They, Toomey. Yeah. So it's not, yeah, it's not impossible. Okay. Thank you, Randall. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Coming up, Professor Greg Barak. It is really hot. I can't turn the air conditioner on. I know it's horrible in in uh, Europe right now. The ShopRite in Englewood, New Jersey, I'm told, has been flooded. And I shop there all the time. And I'm very upset to hear that the ShopRite in Englewood, New Jersey, right across the street from the pizzeria where the Sugar Hill Gang invented rap, uh, has been flooded. You know, rap was invented in Anglewood, New Jersey. A lot of people don't know that. And there is not a plaque to commemorate the Sugar Hill Gang. Maybe that will be, uh, maybe that will be my cause for the rest of the year. Coming up, Professor Greg Barak. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, which is brought to you by... 
The AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. AIDS helped me to lose 18 pounds, and it doesn't contain anything to make me nervous. Question, why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose... That's real, by the way. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A fifth of tequila in case I go on a bender My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light wrinkle cream my Emmy statue for my self-esteem I'm traveling light 
got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to my website and sign up for our newsletter, or my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation to office hours. Let us now go to Professor Greg Barak. These are the books he's written. He writes about everything I care about. He's written 20 books on crime, justice, media, violence, criminal law, homelessness, and human rights. These books include Violence and Nonviolence, Pathways to Understanding, Give Me Shelter, A Social History of Homelessness in Contemporary America, and Theft of a Nation, Wall Street Looting and Federal Regulatory Colluding. And his newest book is Criminology on Trump. Welcome. It's always great to see you, Professor. Thank you, David. I'm always glad to be here. Great, great. Well, let's talk about uh, the hearings. They're going to be, I guess, one last, there's going to be one last hearing this Thursday. And you had a, a piece in Salon. Uh, piece in Salon and, and the crime review, the crime report. Um, this will be the uh, sort of the season finale. Um, it will be a blockbuster. Um, it will, it could possibly under, uh, meet expectations since our expectations are so high, but, but seriously, um, this should, you know, just knock it out of the park and, you know, looking forward to it. We also have the mini trial starting tomorrow with the Banyan's uh, contempt charges. That should be short and sweet. And by the end of the week, uh, we should have a verdict on really, that. Really, it's good. Really, you know, they, they did the jury selection today for his uh, contempt of Congress. He refused to testify before the January 6th committee. When I read today that they were picking the jury, I thought, well, this is gonna, just going to drag out forever but you're saying it will be wrapped up by the end of the week um the, yeah the case i mean they're saying they're going to seat the uh, 12 jurors tomorrow and they expect opening statements to occur tomorrow and they don't really expect the trial to run more than about two days three days at the most does that mean the january 6th committee is over on thursday if if he has to testify There'll be more hearings, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm not following your, your question, David. I mean, what's the January 6th hearings have to do with Bannon's contempt charges? I mean, I thought they were contempt of Congress charges because he wouldn't testify right. before the January. Yeah, yeah, they are. But how will that affect the January 6th hearings? That's what I'm not understanding. Well, now he has to testify. No, now he would probably, assuming that he's convicted, he would have to go to jail. He 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 won't testify. He's you know, he's being charged for not testifying. Oh, 
were refusing to testify, even though at the last minute he was trying to get back on the agenda as a way of deferring this case. And the judge said, no way. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I, I figured you drag him into court, convict him, and his punishment is he has to testify. No, I mean, at that point, you know, he could he could even, you know, take take the fifth if he wanted to. But, um, no, they won't drag him in. They're convicting him and they're going to put him away for, you know, probably six months, maybe. Really? And when yeah. you're when you're brought before you, sometimes when you testify before Congress, you're not allowed to plead the fifth. Right. Um, if you've been given immunity, if you've been part, if you've been part, oh, well, if you, if, if you were given immunity and, and you, and you cut a deal and you weren't going to be charged, certainly, uh, you would have to talk at that point. I mean, that's the point that you're, why you've been given the immunity because you have something to say right. that's worth uh, a bigger fish in the pond, as it were. So he was pardoned by Donald Trump. Unre unrelated to January 6th. Still, you could, was, you could bring him before a committee and force him to answer questions. I think he was uh, pardoned on that uh, that fraud perpetrated on right, people trying right. to build the wall and veterans. Right. But right. If you held hearings on that, he would have he could not plead the fifth then, right? And you could squeeze the truth out of him. Yeah, if you held hearings about his pardon or about the crime that he didn't get prosecuted for because he received a, a pardon that, that you know he he's off he's good on that case they can't go after him on that case but they could get the him on lying to congress about the case but he didn't speak to congress so when did no, he no no i'm saying is that if you wanted if you had an activist committee that wanted to get bannon after the pardon, you could bring him before the committee. He's not allowed to plead the fifth, and you can demand that he answers questions about what he was pardoned for. And if he lies, then he can go to jail for lying before Congress. Uh, the, the, you know, as a non, as a non-lawyer now, and as a criminologist, I'll, I'll I'll defer to you on that. I did not. Did not think that the, they could bring him together and ask him about that that particular case for which he wasn't even prosecuted. Right. He right. was charged, right. but he was never prosecuted. Right. Right. So this is what you write over at Salon. The impending criminal charges to be filed against Donald Trump by the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, and the U.S. Department of Justice are both very different from the thousands of previous lawsuits in Trump's career. Those civil cases, both past and present, have always been about money. The soon-to-be criminal cases will be about Trump's personal freedom and whether he will be wearing an orange jumpsuit for the next several years. This is different. That's Explain that. This is not about money. Well, I mean, one, one, one is a civil conflict between individual parties. 
or between individuals and and corporations or or groups. Uh, it's not a criminal matter. It doesn't involve the state per se uh, as one of the um, the two two member uh, two parties to the suit. So in this case, it's the people or the citizens of the United States or the people of Georgia versus Donald for crimes X, Y, and Z. You know, this is the first criminal litigation that he's really faced in his entire life. If he, if in fact he is prosecuted and that's still, you know, a question mark, but I think both Georgia uh, and uh, the DOJ will prosecute. I don't believe that the one in Georgia will occur before the end of 2022, but I think it will happen this year. Uh, and uh, Merrick Garland won't uh, bring a case before the end of 2023. By then, will he be a candidate for president? Um, probably he'll be, you know, I mean, at the end of, well, the, will he be a candidate? Yeah, I, I suspect he will have tossed his hat in the ring by then. I mean, he's talking about, you know, going as early as before the 2022 uh, midterms. Um, that all remains to be seen, but I, I don't see him getting the nomination and I really see him attempting to do this all over again as a way of possibly extricating himself and postponing a case should he win or steal the next election for another five years out. But I don't think all of that's going to succeed this time. So DeSantis is out fundraising Trump this quarter. People aren't donating to Donald Trump the way they used to. If he gets indicted by Garland. Is that going to be, I would assume that would be good for Trump in terms of fundraising, in terms of animating his base. Don't you think? Um, yeah, you, you, you would think it would an, uh, animate his base. Here, here's the couple questions that Pete talked about. I mean, obviously his base was important to raising money, but big donors were more important than than even his base. His base, I guess, is quote unquote, you know, being hurt by inflation and right. they have less money to part with. And, you know, while many of them are in denial and will be animated by his being prosecuted. And if he's indicted, there are others who say that, you know, violence will break out almost immediately. That's, that's an interesting, uh, procrast, uh, you know, prosecute, uh, prosecute nation, but, um, will be prepared. I think this time. Okay. As opposed to the last time. Witness tampering, there seems to be that that I think that's what Thursday is going to be partly about. Um, They may go a little bit more into the witness tampering than they have, but I think they've got a lot of more um, things to expose than the witness tampering. I think we're taking that, you know, as a matter of fact now. Um, and so 
you know, this is really going to dwell on what was Donald doing for 187 minutes when he was not, you know, trying to stop the assault because he was all in with the assault. That was the game plan. Um, so he was excited. And no matter what people around him were saying or trying to do to get him to call off the dogs, he, he wouldn't do it. Um, it was all left up to Mike Pence to do. And, and that's the person who I would you know, love to have seen come to uh, come to testify. But of course, you know, he's been talking about the possibilities, but that that won't uh, come to fruition. Unfortunately, I mean, he's not using his brain, uh, Pence. Uh, you know, he's polling at about 5%. If he came in and testified, I think he would jump to 20% overnight. In the Republican Party where I, th I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's splitting up. In other words, the DeSantis people, a lot of those, I think, would go to to Mike Pence in this moment in time. There are people who want someone other than Trump. Um, you know, Pence could, you know, pull up, you know, come out as a hero here. I mean, in a sense, he was. You know, he's still. uh Trump is still the most popular politician, uh, he, he, the most popular and unpopular politician in in uh, in Washington. I've heard. I, I listen. You know more than I do. I no, not necessarily did. <laughs> I I I hope you're right, but it just seems that he. He he's Roy Cohn's prodigy. He just knows how to fix the system. He's lasted this long. Why? Why would you say it's because it's no longer about money? It's about. Well, I mean, I mean, well, it's it's about our democracy. It's about our Constitution. It's about a rule of law. It's about our uh, electoral system. I mean, there's there's rumors about that the Senate has a bipartisan proposal to deal with the potential theft of elections in 2024. I'll see that, you know, um, you know, when, when Mitch McConnell is no longer in charge of things, I could not see him doing that, but who knows? I mean, so, so that would be a game changer uh, in, in, in itself. Right. In your if book, they change the, the, the rules of, of, of electing people where there are these flaws in, in, in the 1800 uh, law, uh, regulation that they're talking about amending. So, you right. know, they can't play these fake electric games and set up a system where the Congress and the uh, states can overturn the secretary of state and the votes and just put in their own electors. I think they're going to clean that up. At least that's what the rumors are. That's what the, your what the media is, is saying. Your, your book is Criminology on Trump. It came out this year. You call the Trump family a criminal enterprise since the early 1980s. Uh, right. I mean, they're using their, their organization, which is obviously not a criminal enterprise, um, which is a you know a, a, a corporate body, but within their 
organization, they have various rackets and schemes and ways of, you know, um, committing fraud and, you know, not paying taxes and passing money on from one family member to the next generation. So from that standpoint, you know, it, you know, they're running rackets, they're running schemes. Um, and that's why RICO, you know, is on the table, at least with respect to the CFO uh, of, of their organization, if not Donald and, and the other family members at this point in time. Right. In your book, you say since 73, Trump has been involved in more than 4,000 lawsuits. 60% of those lawsuits, he was the plaintiff. Yes. He knows how to work these. uh, The courts have worked for him, haven't they? Although he has lost. He lost the uh, Trump University case, his charity was he lost that case he does lose right oh oh yeah he does lose he's, he's forbidden from, very strong, he's forbidden a very from starting a charity average. i mean he's lost maybe 50 cases and he's won a few uh, you know three four hundred and what he does so well is as the defendant he gets the 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 plaintiff's case dismissed against him that's what he does so well it's when he's on the defense that he doesn't uh, lose. Right. There, but this are, is, there this are, is different. It's different, I'm but sorry. he has never been nailed for the assault. Something like 30 women have come forward. He's doing Cosby's numbers when it comes to rape and sexual assault. And somehow he skates. Um, th- thus far, that that is true. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 rather remarkable all of the you know crimes that he's been accused of, and yet not charged or convicted of at least criminally. Um, but this is you know, this is a whole different can of worms. I mean, very very different. I mean, I mean, the case appears to be so strong at this point in time. It would be highly inconceivable that even though this is a former president, that you're going to let him get away with all that we know that he did. Uh, It would make a mockery of the government. Um, You know, so Garland is 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 working on the case. There's no doubt that that this this will materialize. And, you know, as an aside, um, in terms of, of, of Garland. Uh, you know, let's assume he's a man of integrity, but let's assume he's a human being. If put yourself in this man's shoes, he wanted to be doing what at this point in his life? He wanted to be on that Supreme Court. And do you think he was really pleased with that outcome where he didn't get even the time of day to talk about why he should be that person? I don't think he was a happy camper with that. His consolation prize was the attorney general. Not a bad consolation prize. But think about it. Now he has an opportunity to go after Trump, to go after Mitch McConnell, to go after the Republicans. Tell me that's not in the back of his mind. Tell me he doesn't want to stick it up their derriers if he could. I mean, that's just 
something that nobody talks about. But to me, he's a human being and, you know, put yourself in his shoes. Would you not be PO'd? And if you had an opportunity to bring down those folks who did this to you, I think that's an, you know, an extra incentive that people don't, you know, bring to bear. He's a human being. It's one thing to bring about an indictment. It's another one to win a conviction. Alvin Bragg, who was just elected uh, Manhattan district attorney here in Manhattan, has pretty much thrown out the case against Trump. There was an investigation that went on for years. They say Trump inflated the value of his properties when he was trying to get a loan, and then he deflated the properties when he was paying his taxes. You know, it, it looked like a slam dunk case of fraud, but it's still it's it still looks like a slam dunk case of fraud. And when it's tried, the one who was, um, shall we say, fixing the books, he's going to go down. There's no doubt that the CFO, why so it will go down. Um, so, you know, did they get to Trump? Well, he's good at not leaving paper trails. He's good at not providing you with any of the evidence. Um, and, you know, had he not been the president where every movie makes, someone is recording it and it's 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 being filed or it's being lost depending if it's the secret service working for you or you know or or against you no but but how many so, people i mean this this is a whole a whole other situation very few people flip michael cone his personal attorney flipped you cassidy uh, hutchinson was that her name you have low yeah. you have low level functionaries willing to testify. Do we have enough? Uh, do we have enough big fish who have flipped? I, I don't even think Weisselberg has flipped. Oh, oh no, no. Weisselberg has not, has not flipped. No, you, we, we haven't had these people flip yet. But when push comes to shove, you think Mark Meadows is going to go the distance? I don't think he'll go the distance. I don't think he wants to go to to prison and that's straight where he's going. So, you know, there's a lot of people who between now and when those charges come down at the end of 2023, who, you know, may play ball. It's just very early um, for them to to, you know, roll over and play dead at this point in time. Well, why has it taken so long? It's complicated. I mean, here, here's the deal that, you know, he was prosecuted the second time for, you know, an insurrection. Um, they had three weeks to investigate. What did they come up with? They came up with a circumstantial case. You know, they had the, the Republican centers to go along with a plausible defense of his. And that plausible defense was, he didn't know these people were armed and dangerous. He didn't know who those people were. Well, we all know that he knew exactly who those people were. And those people were buds with his underlings, whether it's uh, the former uh, General Flynn or whether it's Roger Stone. And we know that 
you know, they're in bed with Donald Trump for a very long time. And we now have these people in bed with the Oath Boys. Is it possible that they're looking, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, as crazy and craven as they are, are looking at a much bigger picture where they see a a massive sea change in America where they don't need to flip? It would hurt them to flip because Trump is launching something where the criminal justice system becomes irrelevant. Um. Well, that I guess that remains to be seen. Um, I'm not talking because it seems like when you watch, I'm not saying Stone is a flipper and I'm not saying that Flint Flint is a flipper. They could be, but I'm not saying that they are. But I'm saying people like Mark Meadows, he'll flip and he's a key player. He'll he'll turn. He won't go. He won't go the distance. A lot of these people, somebody like Mark Meadows, just from what I've seen and heard from the January 6 hearings, uh, Meadows is deranged. He's pure ambition. They were convinced they got seduced by Trump. They thought they thought that they could steal this election. And they didn't want... And when he was when he was making moves to go down to the Capitol on January 6, apparently these people believed that he could intimidate his way into another term. People like Mark Meadows, I don't think Mark Meadows is particularly bright. And I think I think he thought I better play it safe with go with Trump. He's going to he's going to pull it out. There were a lot of people who thought that way. Well, there were also a lot of people that were just sort of biding their time. And, you know, Meadows, you know, you know, he can't, you know, he, he, he got a million bucks, you know, to his foundation. You know, that, you know, that seems like a cheap payoff the way I look at right, it. Trump. But, you yeah. know, but but so so he, he got some money in the deal. But um he I, I don't know that he thought that they would succeed in doing this. He just wasn't going to impede Trump from doing what Trump wanted to do. He was letting Trump be Trump. But think, you know, between the crazies and the normals in the administration, all the normals, as we've seen, were pushing back. You know, Meadows isn't a, a, a normal because he's a, a Trump appointee. He's the, you know, he's the head, you know, person in the in the White House. Well, so. I hate to bring up the early demise of Ivana Trump. But blunt force to the torso, falling down a flight of stairs. Uh, he is a a mobster, Trump. He's playing and he's playing with Putin and the Russian oligarchs and the Russian mafia. Uh, I mean, I know where you're you're going with this. And um, I guess my question would would be, what was his motive? Was she going to testify against him? I'm sure she was on something and just fell. But 
would you put it, would, you wouldn't put it past him or the people he surrounds himself with. He is playing in the dirt well, with the worst of the worst, like the international mafia, the money launderers, Deutsche Bank, the Eric Right, Pieces. right. I mean, you know, she would probably be a tough target, and I don't know, you know, what, you know, what, what interest it, it was for Donald, you know, to be involved with that or to have other people be involved with that. But would, along would, would the you, way of doing, you? of doing research, along the way of doing research and writing, um, various people periodically send me emails or messages and, you know, tell me stories of, you know, various people who were on the trail, who were, who were, you know, doing investigations, you know, who, who wound up dead, but I haven't seen any of these stories materialize in, 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 in the news for real, a little bit of uh, skepticism of various people who were talking with various journalists who had information and, 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 you know, was it coincidence? I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, he got a week off. You know, I don't think he's capable. That week off. Hang on, I got to hang on for one second. Uh, I don't think he's capable. I, I really think uh, Ivana died from natural, well, you know, fell down a flight of stairs. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I know you do, but, but there are other people who have speculated otherwise out there. And my response to those persons are, I don't, I don't see, you know, what she you know, why she would be an object of, of, of that. She wasn't prepared to testify about anything, and I'm sure she was out of the loop for some time. Right. The thing is, though, I, w I don't know if I would go up against Donald Trump. I would be terrified if I had some, if I had witnessed something that he did the January 6th committee starts asking me to testify. The, the, the forces that he can array, not to get you killed or beaten up, but to make your life a living hell uh, and your family. Oh, I mean, there's nothing that he wouldn't do to make one's life a living hell. Um, you know, if, if, if he could, could do that, he, he, he would. You, you pay a price when you go up against him. And, you know, I know that uh, Michael Cohn was warned, you flip, you're a rat, good luck in prison. We know people. So uh, I, I don't see Mark Meadows flipping. I, 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 don't, I don't see the courage. Uh, but I hope you're well, right. Well, it's, it's that he doesn't have the courage. If he had courage, he'd go to prison. But he don't want to go to prison because he's chicken. So he'll, he, he would flip. That's my view. I mean, in other words, I hear what you're saying. What, which consequences to Mark are worse? Flipping and facing the wrath of Trump or going to prison? Uh, you know, I, I, I think he would opt for the wrath of Trump than going to prison. Um, Cohen is, you know, ha has the stuff. He could go to prison. I don't think Mark Meadows could. Right. But 
we have a question for Rodrigo. I know, I know Michael because of his book and his podcasts and his tweets. Uh, I know less about Mark Meadows, but he just strikes me as a wimp. We have to wrap it up, but Rodrigo asks, is it legal to run for president from jail or prison? Could Trump go to jail and win the presidential election in 2024? Well, Eugene I, I, I joke that right? if he runs in 2024, he would be running from prison. But no, I've, I've, you know, I've, I think that felony would uh, you know, disqualify him, especially if it was for the crimes of uh, uh, seditious conspiracy. I don't think he'd be eligible to run. Okay, but no, Donald ran might from, try. Didn't Debs run from prison? I'm sorry. De- Eugene Debs ran from prison, I believe. Well, I actually think there are some people who have run for political office while in prison, but I right. think those were, you know, kind of state state uh, positions, right. not necessarily um, president. Well, we have to wrap it up. Uh, your piece in Salon is entitled "Indictments Are Coming at Long Last." Criminal justice will catch up with Donald. And that is written by our guest, Greg Barak, author of Criminology on Trump. It's published by Rutledge, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. Go by Criminology on Trump, written by our guest, Professor Greg Barak. Thank you so much. Please come back real soon. Thank you, David. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great job. Great conversation. I'd be interesting to see what happens Thursday. We'll stay tuned. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Coming up, Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Join us in the Zoom room by going to my website right now and hitting pay-per-view or attend a live taping. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. We will be right back.
The pathological pursuit of power and profit Drives everything in sight Not sure we can stop it Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top We've lost the power to think So we shop until we drop We're surveilled and monitored While they keep us all distracted So we never notice that our data has been extracted We're living every day We're living every night In the USA of distraction All right
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He'll be joining us a little later on. We have some breaking news coming out of Washington, D.C. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia announced today that it will not press charges against members of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, who were arrested at the U.S. Capitol on June 16th. The people arrested had been filming a Triumph the Insult comic. Triumph the, is it, how is it? Who is this guy? Triumph the Insult dog. Triumph the Insult comic dog segment for the talk show. The decision to decline prosecution was first uh, confirmed by U.S. Capitol Police moments ago. And they made a statement that read the United States Capitol Police has been working with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia on the June 16th, 2022 unlawful entry case that involved a group of nine people associated with The Late Show. The police go on to say the United States Capitol Police have been informed that the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of, District of Columbia is declining to prosecute the case we respect the decision that office has made, unquote. So uh, the people arrested will not be uh, prosecuted uh, for unlawful entry. All right. Let's now go to Dr. Harriet Fraud, who joins us. She is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, as well as It's Not Just In Your Head and... Uh, that's good news that uh, these late uh, Trump the insult comic dog will not be going to uh, court. Uh, let's talk about mass murder, which is not as serious as Trump the insult comic dog uh, yeah. leading an insurrection at the Capitol. I think that's what he was trying. I don't know. I read a little bit about it. Let's talk about mass murder, which seems to... Uh, be uh, happening every day in the every United day, States. At least one. Yeah. There have been 330 mass murders, mass murders this, so far this year. And we're about two thirds done with the year. So that's quite a few mass murders. Yeah. And the new mass murderer profile is it's a young man below 25. And it's someone whose profile anyone could pick out, really. It's someone whose social media is full of declarations of suicide and violence. It's someone who, like the mass murderer Rico at uh, Uvalde, he failed all his courses but one. He was unwashed. His hair was a mess. He wore only in black. And... Um, his nickname to the other kids was, you know, school shooter because he looked like the profile. And um, he was in trouble for a long time and nobody gave a damn. And that's true of Adam Lanza. It's true of the guy, you know, the latest one in Chicago. These are young men in trouble and they have no future because America has thrown them on the slag heap. It's not a place where you can kind of make it the way 
the runaway apprentices did in Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer's day. And they're neglected. They're bullied. Their parents are utterly unrelated to them. 79% of them got their guns legally, but Crumbly, the kid whose parents got him the gun, his gun early before he turned 18. And then this latest one who killed all the people in near Chicago, Highbrook, suburb of Chicago, his father got him the gun that he had, even though he had threatened, said, I'm going to kill everybody with, with a machete. Right. And the police and, said, came and took his knives away. Yeah. But the father got him a gun and uh, doesn't see that he did anything untoward. And the same thing with Adam Lanza's mother a long time ago did Sandy Hook, the other huge one. She used to go to the gun range with him. Otherwise, he was home alone all day with violent video games. And um, the house was loaded with guns. And in the case of Crumbly, the kid Crumbly, I think he was 15, the high school said there are dangerous drawings because he drew pictures of people in blood. Say, and he said, help, help, and pictures of guns. They called the parents, asked the parents to take them home this day. They said, we want you to take him to a therapist within 48 hours. They refused and just left. The mother noticed that his gun was missing, his um, huge long gun, the semi-automatic, and wrote him a text at school, don't do anything silly, LOL. You know, so that these parents are completely in oblivious to their, the danger that their son has. Because all these young killers are committing suicide with a purpose of taking people out, showing they're not losers because they've been bullied and they're losers in every aspect of their lives. They're not losers, they're strong men. And they can wipe people out like they do in the movies. And so they can be somebody rather than an invisible kid on the slag heap, which is what they would otherwise be. And that's what America does to young men. Now, it's all men. It's all males, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly white. But it's also boys who play with guns. Girls are given dolls, not guns. Boys are given guns, rock'em, sock'em, robot toys, a lot of other violent stuff. And... In the films, it's usually the guy who's the shoot 'em up guy, who's the big hero having killed the bad guys. And um, some of them identify with a cause like white supremacy, but others are just asserting themselves because to be a man, you have to be strong and they're weak and frightened. And so it's a tragedy. Also, American women are not doing great by a long shot, but we're doing better than we used to. We do have a future. Women are breaking new barriers. And so that boys are in terrible trouble. And, and women, have, women have a tolerance of frustration. That's right. And a tolerance for feeling helpless and lonely. 
and an ability when they feel lonely and helpless to reach out to other women. Right. They have those, you know, when you're in trouble, the studies they did that determined fight or flight, when you're in trouble, didn't include women. And they they did studies of women where it was fight, flight, or connect. That connection, when you're in trouble, you connect with somebody was very important right up there before fighting when you're in trouble. And because women are the connectors in society. We're the social people. When there's a marriage, we're the ones who invite people over dinner. We, We talk on the phone to each other. When our relationships are over, we get solace from our friends. Guys don't. And so that this is a crisis of young men in the gun culture, America, that is always at war everywhere. And that's how we're solving our problem of a dying empire right now, of fighting to the last Ukrainian and plying them with guns and allowing guns to be concealed everywhere. You know, it's, uh, it's no wonder that it's happening. And so, and I think we ought to notice it because it's an indictment of our culture and no other country has what we do. They have an occasional mass shooting, but not more mass shootings than days in the year. And those are only the ones that are reported because there's four people or more killed and some injured and they're all strangers. Nothing personal. Right. Just killing people like you do in a war. So, you know, I think it's particularly important for us to look at because it's an indictment of the culture and it's also a scream for help from young men who are also much more likely to commit suicide. With a gun. With a gun. With a gun. Well, guns make... When you try to commit suicide, if you do it with a gun, you can't change your mind. Right. The gun changes the mind for you. Exactly. You're done. You're done. If you take too many pills, you can stagger in to your mother and say, I took too many pills. Or you're, you know, in your room on the floor and somebody could discover you. But not with a gun. It's over. And it's very profitable to have so many guns. We have more guns than we have people in the United States. Right. And the gun industry is doing great. You're a a therapist. So much of mental illness, academically, we're told, stems from our mother, our mother, our mother. You can have a loving mother who did nothing but nurture you, who loved you unconditionally and never criticized you, you're still going to have terror and trauma if your mother who loves you is broke, living in a car. Once a week, you check into uh, a Motel 6 to shower, and then it's back in in the car. What kind of psychological long-term damages are done to children, boys who live... Uh, with loving parents, but financial precarity. What does that do to the mind? It does a lot because it's 
what kills people, because we are social animals, and all these mass murderers are isolated. They always say he was a loner. What kills people is the lack of connection, and they are disconnected from America. There's a huge sense of loss because you don't have an opportunity. You have this crap about it's a democracy. You can be whatever you want, but you can't. And the society has abandoned you and your family. You're living on the street or in a dangerous shelter. You've been abandoned. And your school has abandoned you. You can't go to school because you're moving around and you're homeless. And you may have your parents, but your parents can't compensate. If you're being evicted, first of all, your parents aren't in great shape. But there's this huge loss of security. And, you know, I, I worked with little children for a while. With homeless children, when they draw the picture, usually a seven-year-old starts, you know, they, they draw a line for the earth, and they draw a tree on the line. You know, then they draw a house on the line, the square with the triangle roof. Well, if you're having homeless kids draw pictures, everything's floating. Nothing's on, grounded because they're not grounded. They don't know where they, they're going to be, or, and they're always in danger. Shelters are dangerous. The streets are dangerous. And so they're terrified. And that's even if their parents love them. The society hates them. Right. And they, you know, they're sitting there on the sidewalk with their parents and people are not necessarily kind. They're outsiders. And human beings are social animals. That is our claim to fame, that we can cooperate. Otherwise, the more powerful, better seeing, better hearing, swifter beasts would have domination over us. We could work together. We don't Humans belong in, we, we do not belong in places like Minnesota or Wisconsin or Canada because of the weather, but we've learned to take care of one another and keep each other warm. We are. That's right. And, and I read somewhere that a, the head of babies got larger because of fire. We started eating better. And so mothers began eating better when they had babies in the womb and the heads got bigger, which I think humans are the only mammals who can't give birth by themselves because the heads are too big to come out of a woman. So very rarely. It is much harder because, and also humans are, are dependent far longer than other animals. The other animals who are the second most dependent on their parents are elephants who are not viable for two years. Well, for us, it's a lot more than that. And we need other people to survive. And these people, psychologically, we need them to survive. Or we feel a terrified loss of our own viability in the world. And America is an isolating society. It's weakness. It's considered weak to, to need people. And, oh. and it translates into class struggle and work. You've taught me, because I always had trouble 
wrapping my head around uh, as to how management thinks. And when I go to a, a, a deli or I go to a sandwich shop, because of you, I look around and I think, okay, you can't run a, a, a sandwich shop without four or five people. You need these employees. And if they get uh, a little ahead of themselves on their skis financially, uh, they're not going to follow my orders or they're going to phone in sick. They're going to leave me stranded or they're going to serve somebody a bad sandwich and nobody's ever going to come back. So the person running that sandwich shop on a very granular level, because it, it translates into how Jeff Bezos thinks, you can appeal to your employees by being kind and feeding them and making sure they're okay. That's how some bosses operate. But because of the nature of our economic system, if you abuse the workers, they're scared and they'll be more obedient. That, that's what Unless they have a counterforce. Now, right now in the United States, for the first time in a long time, there's a counterforce that people are unionizing all around you. And that you've been told you're essential and then treated like shit when you get back to right. work, which is a bit of a counterforce. But otherwise, you make people feel dependent and humiliated. And so they stay or they don't. I mean, Amazon has a huge turnover rate because even though they pay a little more, they don't pay minimum wage. They pay over that, but they treat you so terribly that people can't stand it and they leave. And that's the same at Walmart, and it's the same at call centers, and it's the same at fast food. Because uh, people don't want to be routinely humiliated. By the way, uh, Jeff Bezos does not obey American laws. He has to negotiate with Christian Smalls and the Amazon Labor Union. He is not negotiating with Christian Smalls. He is not coming to the table, nor is Howard Schultz the CEO right. of Starbucks, they, they, they vote to unionize? That's right. And they think they can get away with it. Look, Jeff Bezos, ask the Rotterdam government in Holland to alter a bridge so his yacht could fit underneath. He doesn't have a sense. He feels that his money will buy him out no matter what. And the government has to come down and arrest the guy. They have to have penalties, and they usually don't. So they just stall it. Yep. And uh, people don't burn down their warehouses, so, you know. And the unions don't want to get involved with the mafia because then they'll owe the mafia, and the mafia will make them pay back. But I don't, you know, you'd have to do something to bring these people to the table. And even though Biden has Walsh, who's a good NLRB person. Marty Walsh. They're way backed up in their cases and they don't have enough staff. And he's not that committed to really beef up the staff and get this going. And I, so that they can be scofflaws. Yeah, I, I was reading about the Amazon labor union. They're having trouble now because they're outgunned by Amazon. Amazon... It's a multi 
is like a trillion dollar company and they can afford lawyers and Christian Smalls is being spread too thin. And and even though the NLRB says you have to negotiate with the Amazon labor union, the lawyers are gumming up the works. And I was thinking of all the artists out there, Bruce Springsteen, John Cougar Mellencamp, Crosby's, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, all the people who stood up to Spotify when Joe Rogan was giving misinformation about COVID. And they were right for doing that. I don't think Bruce Springsteen did. But uh, they should be standing up for the Amazon labor union. All the actors in Hollywood who do business with Jeff Bezos, the least they could do is show up in Staten Island and protest. Yes, with they should. They should and also have concerts where they announce what's going on and send support. Where's Mr. To you know, Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine? Maybe I'm wrong, but I think you can buy uh, his music on Amazon. Uh, he can ra he's raging against the machine on Amazon. Seems to me uh, you're not there's you have no credibility if you're a, a so-called leftist actor or musician or comedian who isn't at the very least helping Christian Smalls. Yes, but they someone would have to organize it. Somebody from the Amazon Labor Union would have to organize artists to stand out and get to their young audiences and say, this is a crime, this is a criminal. We will force him, come down to the warehouse. You know, and they would, but somebody has to organize it. Somebody has to make it happen for anything to happen. Yeah. Somebody has to take responsibility. It, it, it's, That's the way it is in everything. It, it speaks to ambition, the thirst for fame, and saying and do anything to make it. You know, I had an a, a Amazon link. Uh, I, I was part of the affiliate program with Amazon. So I would encourage people, you know, shop through Amazon via my website. I get a small piece out of it. And I knew it was wrong, but I kept doing it. And then I met Christian Smalls and learned about his arrests. And I thought, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but I don't, I just can't live with myself. I can't. No, but you took individual responsibility. I think for most people, they need a movement to do something. But there are people, there are stars in Hollywood there are musicians like Bruce Springsteen, who just sold his catalog for half a billion dollars, or Bob Dylan, half a billion dollars. He could, he doesn't have to pull his music from Amazon, but he could perform. He with could the give work. benefits for the ALU, but somebody has to organize it. And I think they probably would do it. No, they I don't think they would. I don't think they would. I don't think Bruce Springsteen or John Cougar Mellencamp or Bob Dylan would take on Jeff Bezos. Maybe I I'm wrong. If they all did, they'd do it together and it would and they would. But how could Bruce Springsteen not know about Christian Smalls? Of course he knows. Then how come he's not he how come he's not going to Staten Island? 
because it's one thing to feel I mean, the ghost of Tom calm. Joad, this is the guy who sings the ghost of Tom Joad, uh, charges $1,500 a ticket on Broadway to sing about the Okies and the plight of the, the, the homeless, but he can't pick up a guitar. The thing is, you, at least I have found, I'm the kind of person who thinks I'm going to make this happen. I've started four movements in my life because I thought, okay, I'm going to make this happen. But somebody has to take responsibility to make it happen the way Chris Smalls did at the Amazon warehouse and then recruit other people who feel the way you do and make it happen. And that's, you'd, hopefully that will happen. And hopefully there'll be a unified movement that'll make all these things happen. This country is just, the left is just, beginning to recognize class and the importance of unions. Martin Luther King said that is the solution to the race problem and the class problem too. Join unions where everyone works together and needs each other and changes their economic future. There was a time, I'm old enough to remember a time when somebody like Michelle Obama and Barack Obama would go shopping their podcast around. And when Amazon approaches them through Audible, Barack Obama would say, there was a time when somebody like Barack Obama would say, you know, I just can't do business with, I'm, I'm a former president of the United States. It's unseemly for me to do business with Jeff Bezos. Not now. Michelle and Barack just signed a multi-million dollar deal to do their podcast with Jeff Bezos uh, through Audible. Because there isn't a movement that says not to do that. There isn't a socialist presence that shows that that's a sellout. You know, you need this force around you to give you that idea and that courage. Also, I must, I really do think Obama sold out a long time ago. He did close all the operation walls, you know, the Wall Street occupations in the same day. And he also bailed out the banks and let prime mortgage holders die. And most up, that was the biggest blow to black wealth this country has seen since Reconstruction was taken back. So, you know, he's the same neoliberal thing in Brown, which is means that they got the smart idea. Look, Let's not make any class change. Let's just do multiculturalism, which is its own good. I believe in it. Give women jobs. There's room at the top, honey. Just get in there and compete. Let brown people be at the top if they, you know, if, if they qualify and they're competitive enough. Sure. Just keep the capitalist system exactly as it is. Right. Bring on the gays. Just keep capitalist exploitation going. And the left hasn't adjusted to the idea that multiculturalism is very important, but it's not the same as class, the unifier. Otherwise, you splinter people up into their political identities and their race identities and gender identities. You don't unify them and say, I am in this socialist movement and I am also a feminist and stand up for everybody's causes. Really, that's what... Uh, the guy did who won in Colombia, 
South America. The vice president was a house cleaner and she's a black woman and he wants his whole cabinet to be ordinary working people. And that's what they did in Chile also. You know, the, the uh, what's her name? The, I guess she's the vice president of in Chile. I, in, I, in Colombia. No, no, it's in Chile. She's a feminist communist. And a native, oh, and, and, and she's, she's indigenous, right? Yeah, and she's less than, than uh, 31. She's a 30 or 29, I can't remember. But she worked for socialism. And Yuna helped unify the indigenous people, the feminists, the sexual rights people, the climate people, all of the people, the race people in a class movement that would respect everyone and see to everyone's concern. We don't have a place to go. A musician would have to take it on himself to do it or get his manager to do this. Right. That's what you'd have to do. And you'd have to have a feeling in the air that we need to do this. This is our time. And that hasn't happened yet. I hope it is happening. It needs to because the forces against us are pretty powerful, very powerful. But it hasn't happened yet, and it has to. Right. You know, each group is going to get defeated as a separate group. And united, we have a chance. But I think this mass murder, is it's sort of murder-suicide. It's these young men who are intent on dying, most of them do, but they want to make the mark on the world and they want respect. And respect is something they feel they can get at the mouth of a gun and no other way. Right. And that's pretty horrible, but it's true, I think. That's what America's trying to do, be respected in the world by plying Ukraine with billions of arms while one in four kids here goes hungry. And it's not going well in Ukraine for the Ukrainians. Of course not. Of course not. The Ukrainian fascists, which isn't all of them, but as a battalion, killed thousands of people firing into the Russian areas. And Russia was surrounded by native countries and choked off. NATO countries. And you, they have 1,500 miles of border with Russia and Ukraine. I really think Americans, when they're all so upset, this was bombed, the poor children. What about Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea? Hello? We never saw those pictures then. War is terrible. It's always terrible. And the first victim of war is always the truth. So right. you don't know. But you do know that of course it was a provocation to restore America's empire prominence. And it's going to fail. Russians don't have an inflation. We do. The ruble is doing fine. You know, really, this is crazy. Right, right. Dr. Harriet Fraud is host of Capitalism Hits Home, as well as It's Not Just in Your Head, every Wednesday. I do It's Not Just in Your Head with two other people, Liam Tate 
an Ikoi hero to yeah. other people too. And Wednesdays at 2.30 on WBAI here in Manhattan. Uh, you live in New York City. Tell me about, sure what about the stink? Uh, there's a horrible stink in New York City. Our mayor, Eric Adams, says it's the pot. <laughs> and then He doesn't um, want to say it's the garbage. Who knows what crooked stuff is, is going on? Every other city gives you big cans. They attach to the garbage truck and they're done. They don't have piles of refuse on the streets. They don't. France, the same thing. And the garbage is constantly collected. There's a scandal here. And the scandal stinks. The scandal stinks. <laughs> And the garbage stinks and they're closely intertwined. And then if he can't smell it, he says his nose is as clueless as his politics. Really? Well said. Well said. Yeah. Hey, you know, as long as garbage is piling up, bring it down to Wall Street. People should just dump exactly. it. Exactly. Good down. idea. We could get gar a garbage truck brigade. Yeah. To drop it in Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Great idea. Thank to you. organize the garbage collectors. Yes. yes. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. We'll see you Thank next you. week. It's, it's always, we yes. love you. We it's love you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. We, we love, love you, too, Thank and you. your wonderful audience. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. It is time for uh, Stump the Humps. Uh, Dan, I, you know, I don't think Merrick Garland has the will to take on uh, the insurrectionists. Did you hear what the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia just announced? That they're not going to prosecute? Oh, tell us again. The, uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Uh, he's not prosecuting Triumph the Insult Comic Dog for his unlawful entry on June 16th, 2022 at the Longworth office building. Is he scared he's going to lose? They, they actually said in the statement... Uh, let me read you the statement that just came out from the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. We do not believe it is probable that the office would be able to obtain and sustain convictions on these charges. The defendants no longer will be required to appear for a scheduled hearing in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia on July 20th, 2022. I don't think... Uh, Merrick Garland has the stomach to take on. Uh, well, there's there's no DNA evidence on the stogie, but yeah, I'm going to keep my I think I should keep my mouth shut. And uh, let's do a quiz. Let's do a quiz. What, what's the subject matter? Well, I'll tell you all about it. Let's see. So today, this past weekend, the 150th Open Championship took place at the home of golf, the old course at St. Andrews the Royal and Aging Golf Club. Today's quiz is on golf. Well, nobody knows more. St. Andrews, is that the golf course that Donald Trump owns? Nope. Oh. Right around the block, though. Is it in Scotland? Or where is it? Ireland? Where is it? I can't tell you. Okay. Well, listen to me. Uh, I, boy, did I kick Karen Emerson's ass on the Three Stooges. I was... I was amazed at how much I knew about the Three Stooges. I beat her like she had five and I had four points, right? It's a good thing she put her hand up between her eyes. Otherwise, she would have uh, yeah. had some vision troubles. So this is going to be about golf. 
the person with the lowest right. score wins. Who thinks they can beat me in uh, questions about golf? Uh, is Karen here? Does she want to get her ass kicked again? All right, nobody's raising their hand. Uh, oh, I see Karen Emerson. She's here. Karen, you want to get your ass kicked again? No. No. <laughs> Nobody wants to go up against me because I cheat. Uh, oh, hang on. Somebody raised their hand. Whoa. Jonathan Bick. Wow. Okay. Professor Jonathan Bick. Here we go. He's got, he's got Hello, some, David. He's got some dimpled balls. Uh, he's got some dimpled balls, as you say. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I know right. nothing about golf, but I, I figured I'll uh, give it a shot anyway. Okay. Take a swing. Do you want to turn your video on yeah. or, or so we can see your red oh, face? I don't even know what I, I look like. Let me see here. Young man! Come on. Whoa, that's a year ago. You lazy bastard. Get the fuck up, you lazy bastard. That's Lane. That's right. All right. All right. Here we go. Wait a minute. Hey. Okay, <laughs> let's put some money in the kitty. All right. Here we go. Okay, who goes first? Uh, Professor Bick goes first. Oh, hang on. Karen Emerson has something to say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> She's a chicken. She was humiliated last week, and now she's afraid to come back because she's. Uh... I, as I recall, she totally trounced you, David. Wasn't that the case? Uh, not if you rig it the way I oh. did. Okay. My apologies. Okay. So the, 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 it's golf, correct? It, it's golf, and Professor John is first, and question number one is. What type of golf clubs are used for long shots from the tee or fairway? Is it wedges, woods, putters, or strip clubs? <laughs> that would be woods. Give me the choices again. Wedges, woods, putters, or strip clubs? Uh, I'm going to say woods. The correct answer is Woods. And I jump into the lead. It's two to one. It's two to one. Professor Bick, off to a bad start. I don't know how I did that. Yep. Okay, so it's tied up one to one. This is my favorite subject, golf. I, I, I watch golf religiously oh really I'm, yeah, I'm in trouble here i okay. love golf well david you're first on this one question okay. number two what golfer was known as the golden bear was it tom watson jack nicholas ben hogan or the brown bears brother donnie thomas <laughs> uh what was the first one tom watson i'm gonna go with tom watson I'm going to go with the uh, second one. Was it Jack, uh, not Jack, uh, Nicholson? Who was it? It was Jack Nicholas. Nichols. Nichols. 
That guy. The correct answer is Jack Nicholas. <laughs> Sorry, you got that wrong there. <laughs> So the score, the score is uh, David has 10 and <laughs> Professor Jonathan Bick has two. Score is two to one. Uh, and, and the real winner is St. Jude's Hospital. Everyone go make a donation to St. Jude's. They don't turn any kids away. Yes. Did we do a Danny Thomas joke? Yes. The Brown Bears brother, Donnie Thomas. Oh, okay. Yes. Give, Question number three. Who, <laughs> Jonathan Bick is first. No, no, I'm first. You no, no, he, no, I'm sorry, Jonathan. I'm sorry, I'm a little confused. <laughs> oh, <laughs> do that again, Do that again. Do it again. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's the throat. <laughs> okay. Young man! Come on, get in the game, Dan. You're being a little slow. Get the fuck up, you lazy bastard. Okay. Who's first? Professor Bick. Which okay. tune is most widely considered the anthem of the modern golfer? Is it The Stroke by Billy Squire, Love the One You Whiff by Jake Trout in the Flounders, I Can't Drive 255 by Sammy Sneedhagar, or I Like Big Putts by <laughs> MC Chris of Hitchens? I'm going to have to go with the uh, third one, uh, Sammy Hagar tune. I Can't Drive 255 by Sammy Sneed Hagar. David? I'm going to go with, I'm going to agree with Professor Bick. Um, the correct answer is, all the answers are correct. That was a trick question, Dan. There's only one way to get it wrong, and you found it. We, what, we so we none of us get any points. You both get points. What do you every mean? Every answer, every answer was correct. That. Wait, All that, right, I, I guess so. I'll take a, I'll take a point. I could yeah. use it. So now the score is three to two. I'm losing. All right. Question number four. David is first. Yay! What hang on, is? Hang on, hang on. That is number one. <laughs> <laughs> what is a caddy? A caddy? Uh, a caddy. A golden golf ball. C-A-D-D-Y? Yes. Okay. A golden golf ball. A person who carries a golfer's kit and hands them their clubs. An item to measure the length of a golf club. Or a prize for hitting a hole-in-one on a par three. I always thought a caddy was a comment I make with my girlfriends when I've had too much to drink. <laughs> my caddy comments. Uh, not funny. I, well, I, I know that. What, which one is the one who carries your, what is it? That's the second one. A person who carries a golfer's kit and hands them their clubs. Number two. Professor Bick? That is correct. It, it is someone who carries your clubs and, and uh, hands you the, the club when you need it. You are both correct. The audience was a little slow there. 
It's four to three. And Professor Bick has, is ahead. Okay. That's what they say. Yeah. Number five, which golf tournament are you Who's awarded? first? Uh, we're on number five, so that is Professor Bick. Professor Bick. Which golf tournament are you awarded the green jacket as the winner? Is it the Masters, the U.S. Open, the Breeders' Cup, or the Stack and Paper Challenge? <laughs> it's the Masters. David? I'm going to agree. The correct answer is the Masters. Given, given golf's storied history of racism, I think they should probably change the name of that tournament. I have a feeling that's not uh, no longer appropriate. David, you are first for question number six. You are correct. I have a sound effect for number two. Number two, skids. There's a lot of echo in the toilet. Skids. Skid uh, Okay, go ahead. Hitting white balls with a crooked stick, a.k.a. golf. Was Peroni's disease. The answer is Peroni's disease. <laughs> was popularized in around the 15th century in which country? Was it Scotland, England, Spain, or Dominatrix land? Dominate. Well, the obvious answer would be Scotland. That we're always told that that, uh, you know what? I'm not going to try to outsmart myself, so I'll just say Scotland. But I I, I feel it's a a, a a trick question. I'm going to agree. It's Scotland. The correct answer is Scotland. A, a, a little background. A little background on that one is the origins of golf are somewhat unclear, though it is generally accepted that modern golf originated in Scotland. Okay. So, uh, question number. Well, seven. hang on for one second. I thought that was a a trick question, and I'm an expert on trick questions because I used to be a pimp. <laughs> See, tricks would ask me questions. <laughs> Like how much? Like how much? Yeah. <laughs> Get the we have fuck up, you lazy bastard. Okay. Sorry. We have about two that. questions left. Professor John, when your group reaches the putting green. Wait, you broke up. What was that? What was that? When your group reaches the putting green. Oh, well, well hang on for one question. So, wait a second. Who got, who got it right? We both got it right, right? So. He gets that one. I was brooding about how bad that joke was. So it's five to four now, right? Uh, that's what I have, yep. Five to four. And he, he, you know what the secret is? Just agree with Professor John, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, what's Professor the next? John. Okay. When yes. your when your group reaches the putting green, who should putt last? Is it whomever drove last? Whomever is closest to the hole? Whomever is furthest from the hole? Or whomever has the thickest club? 
when you when you get to the green with your group, who should putt last? Who should putt last? Read the choices again. Whomever drove last, whomever is closest to the hole, whomever is furthest from the hole, or whomever has the thickest club. I'm going to say whoever's furthest from the hole should drive, uh, should putt last because the guy who's closest to the hole, you, you might hit his ball. Exactly. Right. Right. So which number is that? Um, whoever is furthest from the hole is number three. Number three. And you want to hear number two? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that microphone was closest to the hole. I All right. You that. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm going to agree with, I, I agree with Professor Bick. Not because I'm just trying to, you know, agree with him. I'm, uh, I, I like the reasoning. Well, the correct answer is whomever is closest to the hole hits last. Really? You mark your ball. Oh, you with, mark? With a, with, a, with a quarter or a little coin, and you move your ball out of the way. Yep. That makes no sense. That's, no. That is the way it's done. All right. So it's still five to four. I'm winning. First time in, in golf, we've had both players get it wrong. Yeah. So last, last question, number eight. Feldo is first. Okay. One of the greatest championship titles to achieve in golf is to be a super swinger. Tiger Woods play- was a super swinger, if you, you know what I mean? With all the, <laughs> he's a super swinger. Yeah, baby. A private holer. A major winner or a JAG officer? A JAG officer. Well, that... All right, give me the... I, I apologize, but I've been staring at sound effects. Uh, I'm not paying... One of the greatest championship titles to achieve in golf is to be a super swinger, a private holder, a major winner, or a JAG officer. You know, I, I actually think I'm, I'm going to go with number two. <laughs> Number two. I, I'm going to say, uh, uh, what was it, a major winner? A major winner is number three. I'm going to say number three then. Yeah. The correct answer is major winner. You got that wrong, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, I don't know how I do it. How do I do it? I, Six to, I got to hand it to you, David. Thank you. But you're a good sport anyway, and uh, we have a consolation prize for you. Here you go. It is my new daughter from Texas. Here's my daughter from Texas. I, I, and who's the lucky mother? We uh, want to meet her? She's in a she's in a bad mood right now. She's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We got a 
okay. a really deep voice. Yeah, today. well, she smokes. We need, to, we need to set up a contest between uh, Emerson and John Hayes and Professor Vick. Yeah, all the people who didn't beat They're me. the best losers. Yeah, they really... <laughs> one of them, maybe one of them could... Uh, okay, six to four. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. We'll, we'll see you. you Thursday, I hope. Uh, yes. Let me, yes. And here's your prize. There you go. I can retire now. Straight right. from the kitty. All right. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger. Great job, as always. You're listening to the victorious David Feldman show. I, I, never, uh, I never lose. When we come back, Peter B. Collins will be joining us. You're listening to the David Feldman show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We'll be back right after this. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me. But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires In the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day? I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Oh, yes, I am. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there, yes I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never That is Professor Mike Steinel, who will be joining us in a little while. Right now we go to San Francisco, where Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer Peter B. Collins is standing by, looking healthy and happy. You're in, you're in God's country. There's never a bad day in, in the Bay Area, is there? Well, we managed to complain, but uh, it's 
it's pretty nice here. It was 91 today at the peak, but the morning was nice and cool around 73, 75 degrees, something like that. Did you get the fog? So, yeah. Well, and we don't have the humidity. Uh, that's what drove me out of my hometown, Cincinnati. And also, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a while, and the humidity there is absolutely miserable. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's what is the biggest bonus here. You know, they used to say people talk about the weather, but they can't do anything about it. It's no longer true. We We've done something about the weather, haven't we? We've, we've changed it. <laughs> well, slowly and uh, very effectively, yes. Now, if America... I mean, go ahead, I'm sorry. Waves in, uh, Spain is having uh, massive heat and wildfires that are tough to tame, similar to what we've been experiencing. And now the, uh, the island of Great Britain is facing its biggest heat wave perhaps in history. I think it topped 100 degrees Fahrenheit there today. Right. Uh, the, it was so hot today, the Queen's blood was only icy cold. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what that meant. I have no idea. I love the Queen. I love the Queen. I do. Uh, if there were a country responsible for 30% of greenhouse gases, refused to do anything about it, and it wasn't America, we would invade that country, wouldn't we? We would say your coal-burning plants are weapons of mass destruction. You got to go, right? Well, we don't actually... We have imperialism that doesn't involve saving the planet, it's saving capitalism. And uh, capitalism is, in my view, one of the uh, intangible root causes of climate change. And it is our overconsumption that is the most critical, uh, controllable factor. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, gas prices are coming down. Uh, we peaked at over $6 here. <clears throat> it's now $5.19 at the cheaper places. But diesel fuel is still way up over $6 a gallon. And if the oil barons wanted to give us any relief to the inflation cycle, they would start by lowering diesel prices. Now, this is separate from the emissions and climate change, just practical economics during uh, a period of hyperinflation. And, of course, the other thing we would do is remove the Trump arbitrary tariffs from Chinese products. There was a study released today that shows that the average American household could save about $1,000 if we removed the Trump tariffs, or at least some of them. And uh, I may have said this before, I'm not a free trader. But I also don't believe in arbitrary uh, tariffs and duties that really just drive up the cost for American consumers. Uh, the Chinese are not paying those tariffs. Trump, Trump, Trump said they were, though. Yeah, right. He did. Well, it's just one of 30,000 proven lies, David. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
The other way to bring down, we talked about this earlier, something like 30% of inflation, the way they weighed it and measured, is housing costs, uh, price of rent. And all you need to do is build more homes and the price of rent goes down. Problem solved. But Well, we have housing inventory that is off the market, offline. In San Francisco, there is an estimate that there are as many as 45,000 single-family units. These are either homes or duplexes uh, that are vacant. And some of them probably need repairs, aren't uh, you know really habitable. But a large number of them are just off the market for reasons that are uh, personal or peculiar to the property owner. Uh, then there are the private equity funds that started buying up single-family homes during the 2008 uh, Bush recession. And they continue to hold those properties. And they are jacking up the rents, uh, profiteering, uh, without any real serious increase in costs. And so... Uh, the third element there that, again, is within our grasp is uh, short-term rentals, Airbnb, which have taken a lot of properties off the market. For example, I live just north of San Francisco in Marin County, and out at the coast, there are small communities in West Marin where the local teachers, the people who work at the supermarket, a uh, woman who runs an art gallery, a firefighter, uh, not only can't afford a rental home, there is nothing available. And it's because so much has been converted to uh, weekend getaways for uh, tech, tech workers who don't really care about the prices because they get paid so well. So what, what we have seen is a tragic widening of the gap between rich and poor in this country. Well, I want to talk to you about Paul Pelosi, your, the wife, the husband of your, your congressperson. Pelosi's your congressperson, right? No, actually, Jared Huffman represents uh, the area north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. But, uh, and, and Nancy has never directly represented me, but I know her quite well, and I, I worked on a campaign for her about 25 years ago. So there's an issue with chips, semiconductors. We aren't competitive enough with China. There's a bill before Congress that would subsidize our chips industry. Uh, Congress is about to give $52 billion in subsidies and tax credits to our chip makers here in the United States. There's some they haven't settled on the bill because they're complaining that too much of the money is going to Intel. But uh, we'll be giving $52 billion of our money to Silicon Valley. And Paul Pelosi, in the past month, purchased, what, like a million dollars worth of chip stocks? I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I haven't followed his... Uh transactions i've been following his court case yeah how can that be legal how can the husband of the speaker 
how could it be legal for him to invest in chips when there's a $52 billion uh, bill before Congress and they're trying to iron out which companies will get how much of the $52 billion? It's obscene. So what, what is the deal? Is he going to prison? Is he, I'm sure they're going to lock him up forever for drunk driving, right? No, I, uh, you know, he reportedly uh, was just over the threshold with drunk driving. He was appointed something. Uh, and the individual who he apparently collided with, and it appears he caused the accident. Oh, Pelosi uh, didn't cause the accident? No, no, I'm saying Paul did cause oh, the okay. accident. Oh, okay, yeah. And so, uh, you know, he'll get a point on his record. His insurance will go up. Um, but I doubt that he will, you know, he, he spent a night in jail, which was unusual. Uh, but that will be the extent of his incarceration, uh, from what I can see. You take a black man who crashes his car into another car and is drunk. What happens? Well, there are new statistics that were just published in the Sunday San Francisco Chronicle that show that in San Francisco itself, uh, a black male is 12 times more likely to be stopped by the police uh, than a white male. So I think people can extrapolate from that. I, you know, to me, you know, I don't know what the law is in the wine country up in San Francisco. I remember Mothers Against Drunk Driving, zero tolerance for drunk driving, especially if there was a car accident. I'm, I'm stunned by how lenient they're being with Paul Pelosi. And I'm stunned that they're not making an example of him. Well, I'm not stunned, actually. Uh, yeah, it's not stunning. Yeah, it, yeah. Well, Biden is more of a disaster than even you could have imagined. I know you didn't vote for him. I did. I could not imagine him being this horrible. But he is. He, he's well, you know, I, I, I will back into this this way, that Biden has faced uh, obstructionism that's even, you know, a couple of levels greater than what Obama faced. And so I put in context his failure as president. But his history predicted virtually every element of this. The, the anomaly was during his first year as president when he did work hard to pass his badly named but uh, you know important package called Build Back Better. And there was a lot of good stuff in there that was from the Bernie Sanders platform. May not have been total Sanders, but it, it was 
more than incrementally moving in the right direction. So uh, Joe Manchin stopped it. And I understand the first time Joe Manchin screwed Joe Biden, that there was some element of surprise and, uh, you know, it wasn't, we, we thought Manchin would get on board and play ball. But he, he's now screwed Biden for, I've lost count, it's the third or fourth time as he feigned interest in a compromise. They wrote a bill to his specifications, and this is related to climate change and tacked onto it as prescription drug prices. And once again, Joe Manchin went went to the, the dark side, to the Republican side. And the stakes are higher in, in every respect because Manchin blocked any voting rights legislation, even that which was watered down and tailored to his specifications. Joe Manchin claimed that it was the $1,200 checks to people who couldn't pay their rent that caused the inflationary cycle that we're currently dealing with, and therefore he won't agree to any more spending, uh, which is preposterous. Uh, you can ask any uh, person who knows something about economics. And so remember when Bush flubbed the uh, fool me once, fool me mm -hmm. twice thing? <laughs> well... Biden has allowed himself to be uh, encircled and ensnared by Joe Manchin time after time. Right. And new polling today shows that Democrats are fed up with it. And we've talked about this, David. You can argue that, OK, you got a split Senate. The Republicans are all completely unified. Uh, zero defections. And so the Democrats need to line up in the same fashion. But Manchin has shown that he only cares about himself and his dirty coal company in West Virginia and the corporate contributions, including from energy sector companies that he, uh, he you know, uses to continue to hold on to his seat there. And so there, there's so much riding on this. And with the economy and the dumper, the polls show that Democrats uh, are running away from Joe Biden. The only silver lining in the polls is that the number for generic support of Democrats in the House went up by one point. <laughs> and it's now uh, 50 to 49, I believe, in favor of the Democrats. But you can't gerrymander well, that. No, you can't. And you, you can't. Uh, the, the House races simply resist being nationalized, even around abortion rights, which mm -hmm. is a, a very critical issue. And once again, Joe Manchin is on the wrong side. And so what we had talked about earlier is that Joe Biden should have gone to Wheeling, West Virginia and given a speech and given an interview to the local TV show and the newspaper and said that, you know, my friend Joe Manchin has two choices. Get on board or we're going to cut him off from all the pork that comes out of Washington. And 
he also should have gone to Arizona and delivered the same about Kirsten Cinema. But he went to Scranton, Pennsylvania to <laughs> persuade people. You know, that's his birth town. He moved to Delaware as a kid, but he, for some reason, thinks that going back to Scranton is where he connects with working class America. But his, his failure to uh, put adequate political pressure on these recalcitrant Democrats is a, is, you know, a major failing. And uh, so Democrats are, to the extent that they can run, uh, they have to run away from their president in this midterm cycle. And coupled with the gerrymandering, the, uh, you know, longtime pattern of the out party gaining ground in the midterm elections, uh, the state of the economy, the uh, state of Joe Biden's mental capabilities, all of these leave Democrats uh, hungry for something else and there's nothing else in the There's pipeline. nothing else there. Refresh my memory. It seems to me that there were two tracks. There was Build Back Banner, Bernie's bill, the social safety net bill that included climate change. And then there was the so-called bipartisan bill, bipartisan Infra infrastructure bill. We on the left said we will not pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which Joe Manchin wanted, until uh, we pass Build Back Better. And promises were made. Pramila Jayapal, who runs the Progressive Caucus, caved. I think the, they got to the, I think the Black Caucus did an end run around the Progressive Caucus and said they <laughs> would support the bipartisan bill without a guarantee of uh, build back better and Pramila Jayapal caved. But, but there was a Clyburn move in there too. James Clyburn uh, has undue influence over Biden and he uh, persuaded Biden to reassure Democrats in the House that Biden would fight for build back better, but they simply couldn't wait any longer to pass the infrastructure bill. And so Pelosi caved because uh, Biden caved in front of her and, and she really didn't have a choice. So yeah, that was uh, a, a critical turning point uh, about nine months ago. And had they, had they stood up to Manchin uh, and not given him build back, and not given him the, the bipartisan bill, would he have suffered I mean, his donors benefit from the infrastructure bill. That was a love letter to his donors. But would he pay any price if the left destroyed the bipartisan infrastructure bill? Uh, not really, because he remains, you know, in a very strong position as an individual. And, uh, you know, his biggest threat would be to join the Republican Party. And he, you know, that was back-channeled a few times. And uh, it was effective in, in basically de-linking uh, those two bills. 
Do you really believe there is no way to move Joe Manchin? That, no. as you just said, no, he I, could have gone down to West Virginia and made the speech and played hard. And Biden didn't try either one. I mean, I'm sure there were conversations that Biden had with Manchin where he tried to move him in his direction. But we have no indication that any uh, political hardball was delivered. And so now we're looking at, God forbid, Kevin McCarthy as speaker a year from now. And it's just an investigation of Hunter Biden, right? They're just going to impeach, impeach, impeach as the planet burns. Well, they will go sideways. And, you know, where, where are they going to put Matt Gates? And, and why hasn't he been indicted? That's a Florida state case. And it is amazing that he is still at large. So we, we've got a big mess on our hands, David. And uh, I, I don't see much of a way forward. But if, if I may, uh, before we run out of time yeah, here, yeah. I wanted to mention that uh, last week I was watching the January 6th hearings, and I commend the committee. I think that they've done a great job of breaking through the stone wall that the Republicans erected that, in my view, broke the Constitution when the second impeachment was just iced and not permitted to uh, gain any traction. The same people who obstructed that are now at least momentary heroes to the American media. But the most interesting thing was that after the hearing last week, John Bolton was interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN. And most of it was forgettable. Bolton, you know, has distanced himself from Trump, but he still does carry some water for him. Mm -hmm. So trying to make the point that the, the mess that occurred on January 6th couldn't be called a coup because it wasn't very well organized. And he said, I've managed coups. It's very complicated. And Jake Tapper kind of did a, a you know, Stooges face and said, really? He said, do you want to tell me about those coups? And first Bolton said no. And then he said, well, it's in my book. And his book was uh, censored by Pat Cipollone, okay, who he had just been praising for his momentary courage. And so, yeah, he said Venezuela. So this was a really important admission by a top Trump foreign policy. This, this was the failed coup with with. Uh under the Bush administration, or the one where Maduro, they try to get Maduro out and replace him with the the first coup. The first coup attempt was in 2002, when we got Hugo Chavez out of office for something like 48 or 72 right. hours. It failed badly. We kind of said, "Oh, oops, uh, it's not as bad as the Bay of Pigs." Uh, right. You know, bye bye. But this was in 2017 and 2018. Now, we have to admit that this was built on the failed policy of the Obama administration. 
which was all based on a phony and unproven premise that Nicolas Maduro had twice been elected in rigged elections. There is no evidence to support that whatsoever. And I'll be candid, Nicolas Maduro is a thuggish socialist leader of a poverty-stricken country that has oil, but its infrastructure to be able to extract and refine that oil is virtually devastated just through failure to maintain it. And that's poverty that, that has caused all that. But what John Bolton admitted was that we played this coup game where we propped up Juan Guaido, who claimed to be the president based on a phony and ginned up vote by the National Assembly. And even if you accept that that vote was somehow legitimate, the Venezuelan constitution limited his role as an acting president to 30 days. Nevertheless, the U.S. released tens of millions of dollars of Venezuelan money to the control of Juan Guaido and his oligarchic uh, coup plotters. They gave the Venezuelan embassy in Washington over to the Guaido people. And Max Blumenthal and Margaret Flowers and others uh, occupied that embassy on behalf of the Maduro government for uh, a week or two. Then there was the episode where the U.S. supported what was as badly executed as the Bay of Pigs, that's the Cuban invasion of 62, uh, they, they tried to claim that a bunch of uh, radical elements of the Venezuelan military had uh, grouped just across the border with Colombia and that they were launching an assault only they couldn't even get across the bridge from Colombia to Venezuela. And CNN, to its long-term discredit, played the Pentagon State Department propaganda arm to claim that this was a legitimate uh, rebellion by members of the Venezuelan military. And the whole thing was as concocted as any Hollywood drama you might want to point to. And to this day, there has not been a single Democrat or Republican who has criticized U.S. policy toward Venezuela. Even with Bolton's admission, I have yet to hear even a self-styled progressive Democrat say, wow, <laughs> we were lied to, or I was wrong about that, or justice dictates that we lift the sanctions on Venezuela, or even our self-interest justifies lifting the sanctions on Venezuela to put more oil on the world market to replace what we're trying to keep Russia from producing and selling. And I'll leave it with this question. As odious as anybody might think Nicolas Maduro is, and yes, he has gangs of thugs who go out and beat up his opponents. He has jailed his political opponents. He has jailed Americans as hostages. 
But he never has sent a crew of commandos with bone saws to kill an opponent on at, at, at the embassy or consulate in a foreign country. And when Biden went to Saudi Arabia last week and, you know, the fist bump photo, I don't give a shit about that. It was the obsequiousness of Biden going hat in hand to Saudi Arabia saying, please put more oil on the market while ignoring our neighbor to the south where people are dying every day. Even women who are allowed to drive their cars in Venezuela are suffering because of the U.S. sanctions. And to cozy up to the Saudis, and there's no indication that Biden got anything out of this. There was no announcement that, uh, yeah, the OPEC is going to meet and they're going to produce more oil and it's going to relieve the, the spike in prices worldwide. Nothing. And so to consort with MBS, who is a, an obvious murderer, and to eat the words that Biden had spoken about him before, and Biden lied about his exchange with MBS and, and King Solomon. The New York Times, in a polite, uh, you know, back of the book story in the Sunday paper, listed all of the times in his history of public service where Joe Biden has mischaracterized conversations that he had, meetings that he had, exchanges on paper. And, and so, so he didn't tell MBS to, to confess to Khashoggi's murder. He lied about that. He made some kind of a passive comment about how U.S. policy is that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia arranged for the killing of Khashoggi. And we're told that MBS disavowed any connection to it, and Biden left it at that. Biden also went to Israel, where there is no government right now, and agreed to attack Iran under certain circumstances. You know, he hedged it. But he didn't raise anything about the Israeli assassination of the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla. He declined to meet with the family of Ms. Akla. And our State Department and the White House have worked to hand in hand with Israel to claim, uh, we don't really know who fired that shot that killed her. There was nobody else in the vicinity who could have done it. And they're saying, well, you know, we finally got the bullet, but it's not conclusive. I'm sorry, that's, that's just pure bullshit. And so Biden wants to claim a foreign policy victory here. And there's this talk of, you know, expanding U.S. influence into the Middle East in some unexplained way that's going to challenge Russia and China. And I'm sorry, we have been in the Middle East for 22 fucking years. And it hasn't worked out in any way that's put Russia or China 
on a back foot. Russia, Putin's meeting with Iran. Iran has fallen into the embrace of Putin now. Well, Iran has no choice. Just like 50 years of, of the U.S. embargo of Cuba and the attempt to isolate Cuba forced them into the arms of Russia and to some extent China, we give Iran no choice. And Biden is still talking about the Iran nuclear deal, but it's dead in the water. And, and he cracked a, a lot of people up last week when he was reading from a 20-year-old script talking about a two-state solution. Israel has totally eviscerated any possibility of a two-state solution. And for him to be talking about that in 2022 only underscores his cognitive decline, even if it's just part of the script that, that Tony Blinken gives him. So I, I just look at this, and Venezuela is not the only place where we attempted a coup. We did it in Bolivia. We attempted it in Syria, in Libya. In America. <laughs> well, they, yeah. <laughs> I, I believe uh, uh, Scalia wrote the decision in 2000 that gave it to Bush. So there we are, David. Great Thank job. You for Thank you. Great job. And, you, you know, I was a lot of people who, like me, who don't have critical thinking, kind of laughed off the Bolton statement, just thought, oh, that's kind of funny. And I paused for a second and just, yeah, of course, you know, of course he conducted coups. And uh, I think most people thought the way I thought. Uh, although Jake Tapper wanted details, but they should be all over that. They well, Jake Tapper owes us an apology for CNN's coverage of that that attempted entry from Colombia. It was a total, total psychological operation. And the media played it. I, I give a lot of credit to Max Blumenthal and his crew at the Gray Zone. They have right. been uh, deadly accurate in their reporting on America's misadventures overseas. And, you know, they get ripped up and attacked, ridiculed. And, you know, like any other outlet, I don't agree with everything that comes out of there. But on these critical points about America's foreign policy failures, we are always the last to know. Our failed covert operations are apparent to the people on the receiving end, but not to right. us who pay for it and who tolerate these spooks who keep running them. Right. Right. Great job. Thank you for allowing I feel Oh, no, I, I, it's great. Thank you. Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of his podcasts, radio shows, and interviews. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you. You're welcome, David. Great job. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where our only elected official, it, Professor Marianne Cummings, is standing by. Now, I screwed up. Uh, we were supposed to look at the sky today. Remember, we talked and we made no... Well, 
Yes, we did talk about that. And uh, I think I'd kind of like to do a talk on um, office hours, you know. Okay. For me, a kind of an academic lecture, that might be better suited to office hours because there's so many pretty pictures and that's not going to translate well into a podcast. However, I have been noodling around all afternoon on and off, you know, looking at some of these images. And I was just fascinated with the uh, ring nebula that was captured. And I mean, the images that are coming out, I mean, these are the, the new generation of CCD-like uh, detectors that are in the web tubble, I mean, it, on the web telescope. I mean, this is a 30-year advance over what is in, in the Hubble telescope. It's just astounding, you know, the accuracy and the things they can glean. And, and as I said, and that's what I'll probably bring up in my talk, well, I will no doubt bring up in my talk, was that there's the infrared, which is heat, which is the past red. Um, that's a fabulous range to look at possible organic signatures. And, you know, but they're looking, I mean, they have just this fascinating uh, transient type technology that can like track uh, movements in, in, with, with incredible like Pico, Pico. I don't know what's beyond Pico. There's Nano, there's Pico, there's Femto, there's Yato. I to go through my units, but I mean the the time resolutions is just is just astounding, and uh, they're going to be tracking asteroids. I was looking at the rings of Jupiter today on the Webb telescope. Jupiter has rings. The only problem is is that unlike Saturn's, they're very very hard to see optically because just of all the the light that's uh, emitted from Jupiter, reflected from Jupiter, and uh, you can see it, but you can point it out. And even people didn't think they'd be able to see it, but there's just a, some beautiful images of the rings of Jupiter in the infrared. Oh, this is just gonna be so much What fun. What is the value, why is a telescope better than a, uh, a spacecraft? Because it's more focused, you can spend more time lingering on one well, I mean, a spacecraft, it is spacecraft, you know, it's, it's getting, it, 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 you have to get all of this stuff up there and you have to precision place it um, in, on, on the literal dark side of the moon and you have to correct it. I mean, you have to, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a complicated space mission, but, you know, uh, if you're talking, putting people up there, I mean, you know, the wetware is just way too fragile. <laughs> to, you know, to stay up there very long. And it just is a vast amount of um, technology and energy, not to mention payload to make a support system for us. Now, if if we had evolved like, you know, as silicon-based life forms, which the web may not pick up as well, but nonetheless, you I mean, that we'd be, you know, more suited to inter travel, interstellar or just space travel outside of atmospheres. Uh, that might be another issue. But, so it is conceivable um, that we could encounter life that is not carbon based. There's no rule, right? There's no rule that's. That is conceivable. Um, there are. However, you know, just the flexibility of carbon atoms, and there is probably something fundamental that we don't understand about DNA. And by the way, that's the big, that's the big question. Because I remember even as a kid, they were able to, you know, zap elements and amino acids emerge and they're all oh, we can the Stanley Miller apparatus. Well, the Stanley Miller apparatus. 
Right. And but the thing is that, yes. And the thing is, though, is that when we think of life, we think of something that can reproduce and everything that we call life has DNA or primitive RNA as a kind of reproductive mechanism. Now, does this does DNA spontaneously occur in a lot of places or was it a complete one off accident on planet Earth? That's a big mystery that that I mean, that's a, that's a mystery. But um, anyway, I, I just think that, you know, the, the, the images are lovely. There are so, there's a broad spectrum of science. But of course, you know, the uh, one of the premier uh, missions is to like do the scan of exoplanets in our galaxy and, and try to find. And there's all kinds of I mean, there's all kinds of ways we've been we, we discovered the first planet outside of our solar system in 1995. And there's, you know, all kinds of methods by which we detect planets. You know, some of them are indirect, some of them are direct. Um, we've just said we've just, we've just discovered thousands and thousands since when I was last time I was teaching astronomy over at Northern Illinois. I finally went to the SETI website for the first time ever and looked at the Drake's equation. And uh, and I'm looking at this thing going, wow, this was all speculation about 20 years ago. But the first like, you know, four or possibly five terms now have data with not insane error bars on them. So it's, uh, it, 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 this is going to be a fun time. I mean, if we can survive it, if we don't, you know, snuff ourselves out, but you right. know, this is going to be, it's going to be a fun time. And, and so, we, yeah, and, and we have gotten that, most of it right. Since, since the beginning of our space program, We've gotten most of the physics right when it comes to the universe. Uh, well, uh, not. I don't know who we. I mean, people had, for instance, diverging ideas about you know a finite universe, a closed universe, or a steady state universe, or the Big Bang, or rather, Big Bang or steady state, where the universe is closed or open, and. Like even Einstein believed in the steady, the steady state. And I remember um, it was, what was this, Kobe? It was the Kobe satellite that was measuring, was doing kind of a definitive measure of the, um, uh, of the microwave background. In other words, the things that had these guys who ended up getting the Nobel Prize, Arno and Penzias, like, they, they were working on a satellite program for, uh, at, uh, at the phone company, Bell Labs, and they were seeing this noise and they had no idea what it was. They just completely stumbled on it. There was a group at Princeton that was actually building a detector to measure this, this noise that would definitively show us that, um, you know, that, that or would give it first evidence that the, there, that everything in the universe had started from us single point. In other words, the entire universe, anywhere you look, was in thermal equilibrium with the rest of the other universe. And you would see that remnant in this microwave background. Well, when we saw the data from COBE, earlier experiments were, the quality of data was just not determinant. There's something you learn uh, in physics, it's called black body radiation, and it's just a particular curve. And it was kind of the conundrum, because you couldn't calculate this in cla using classical physics the only way you could you could uh make a calculation of this 
was using quantum mechanics. And that's a whole nother thing. But uh, there's very, very few things in physics that you see the almost perfect example of. I mean, everything is an idealization in, per- in, in physics and you kind of have it, the, re- the, the real world implementations are usually, you know, just imperfect examples of it. But when we saw the microwave background, it was over at some physics meeting, but they were showing all this data because it's astrophysics. Um, he's, somebody asked them, we were looking at this data and they're going, well, what are the error bars? Have you calculated the error bars? And the guy said, oh, the error bars are there. They're just so tiny, you can't see them in the dots. And it was just a hush over the audience, like, holy crap. I mean, it was just the entire universe is a perfect black body radiator. So that established, that established Big Bang Theory. And that, and that has, you know, been the model, a kind of standard model for astrophysics ever since. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, there's there's inflation models. There was a sudden expansion of the universe, which was a sudden creation of space time. We're sure not. We we don't understand why that is, but our instruments have picked that up. I mean, astronomy is a data driven field, which is and it, probably why people have been getting things right because they've had a constant feedback of data from all these fabulous instruments and. Um, I think, who is it? Uh, the guy who was uh, pushing the first Mars rovers. Um, some, the guy who took over from NASA, NASA in the late 80s when Congress was considering just scrapping it all together, basically completely turned NASA around. Um, they kind of dumped any plans for like, like uh, manned missions to Mars and all that kind of stuff. And they focused on instrumentation. And, and science and basic science and told the aerospace industry that they have to pay for a lot of their safety. Uh, they had to pay for a lot of their own safety, you know, like compliance issues and things like that. But yeah, so it's been, um, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a joy to, to read this stuff. It's, it's just a pure joy to, to read and to, you know, just begin to think of, you know, what we could do with this thing. And then, it's up there for a while. Hell, even the Voyager, which up to this point, I think had been the single most successful scientific endeavor in the history of humanity. It's still, both of Voyagers are still past the solar system, you know, just, you know, taking data. People have been very clever turning things on, off. They're able to extend the lifetime for another 10 years on their little nuclear battery. And it's out of past Pluto, all the way out. Oh, yeah. And, and, and this is the thing, until I taught at astronomy, I, I, had to, I had really no idea. Well, now, what defines the, the, the boundary of the solar system? Is it, is it just the, out, the outermost orbit that Pluto can possibly take? Because it is a highly eccentric orbit. Is it the, or is it the Oort clouds? Is it, no, what it is, is it's, uh, the technical definition is where the um, solar wind, which is emanations from the sun, and it's protons and other particles. When the solar wind hits the interstellar gas, that bound, when, when basically the solar wind can't press against the interstellar gas because it's you know one over r squared, it gets too diffuse. Is that's kind of defined as the edge of the solar system? And they went through that transition era, and they were taking a lot of data, and now they're. Uh, 
you know, they're making their way in interstellar stellar galactic space Amazing. right now. Um, they renamed the mission, the interstellar, um, the interstellar, interstellar survey, I believe. But um, what fuel, what's fueling the Voyagers? Is it nuclear? Yeah, it's a, it's a nuclear battery. I mean, in other words, it's fueled by nuclear decay. It's not a reactor. And, uh, and it basically, they have instruments that turn that heat given off of the nuclear decay into, into energy that powers special batteries. It's a, and it could keep going yeah, for how long? Yeah. And they, well, they've been able to shut things down and they're just getting clever about, you know, judicious use of, of the power. So that can go on for another 10 years. And believe, if so. there's no, gravity it'll just stay in motion won't it just keep it'll just stay in motion right pretty much it, it's just you know it got out of uh it's well it's i i don't exactly know how significant the sun's pull is at that moment i mean there is asteroids that you can go past where the voyager uh, uh detectors are but you know it's uh it's very very little I mean, it's a, it's just basically the power is just powering the instruments and the, and sending the transmissions back to Earth. And how long does it take for the transmission? Are are the transmissions traveling at the speed of sound or or light? light. They do go light in a vacuum and that's just, uh, eight minutes. Yeah, that's, oh, that's more than eight minutes past Pluto, you know. I'll have that in my lecture on office hours, but that would be fun to see, you know, what the transit, I mean, they were kind of getting it right a little bit in, um, in, in 2001 space odyssey where, but they were mentioning that they were kind of editing for transmissions and, you know, uh, something like about eight minutes, I think past Mars, but, um, it, anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's it's rather amazing. I mean, now when you've got a turnaround time of at least hours before you, when you send something out before you get feedback, you know, right. to what you've done. But, you know, it's, uh, look, we've got computers now. I mean, early NASA didn't have computers. They had guys with a bunch of guys with slide rules. Right. <laughs> you know, we're very, very good. Very good at integration in a way I'll never be ever again. Um, but... It, it's, but we we do have just the the, uh, the computing power and the you know the programs and the apps. I mean, it's just a, it's just astounding. We've been able to build up on you know, people's efforts from you know years ago, decades ago, have, have not gone wasted. It's all been kind of systematically uh, building up to the, our ability to do this, and so that's a that's a marvelous thing. That's the ultimate in cooperation, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Well, that's so good. I think so that's a bit of good news on this dark planet. Um, yeah. yeah, I think we always we always go to the edge. I mean, we can't I, I was uh, I follow uh, our, our friend Peter Kalmus on, on Twitter mm-hmm. and we communicate from the jet. He he's was, a jet propulsion lab scientist, yeah, the jet propulsion lab guy who is studying climate change. And he's saying, like, wow, I don't know what happened. He says, but uh, even conservatives I know are are telling me uncharacteristic things like, "Hey, this this might be real." 
And I said, yeah, well, you have, have you checked the weather in Britain this past week? I mean, it's, it, it, it's really scaring people now. And, and maybe, you know, this is this existential planetary threat can put the pause button on a lot of just freaking nonsense that's been going on. As I said, I'm, a little bit of hope when the U.S. and Russia can, like, you know, cooperate on the space station, even in the midst of, you know, this this war, hot war, and this even hotter propaganda war. Um, I think there's a there's a little ray of hope on all this. It takes. And, yeah, go ahead. No, but that's that's basically what I was. Did you want to ask me something? No, 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 no. I, I it's. It may be too late before we realize the house is on fire. You know, the people we have people yeah, living on the top, people on the penthouse. We have people on the penthouse who don't yeah. know that the the luxury apartment is burning to the ground, and they think well, it can't um, reach them. And and the thing is, ironically that might give a ray of hope to people at the bottom of the economic pyramid, because, you know, these guys, I, I remember reading as a kid because, you know, the neighbors were passing around books. The, the wives were passing around books and one of them was the fountainhead and I'm reading this thing. And even as you know, I'm reading it, I'm 12 years old and like, Oh yeah, the rich people, the people are quote productive are all going to get together and live where all these unprotected, you know, the people who like do your garbage and your plumbing and your wiring and your crap. Yeah. All the useless people <laughs> you're going to leave behind. So to me, it was like a comedy. I, the phone, was like a comedy book and yeah, you know, we're, the neoliberal policies have stretched us out so far that these supply chains which, you know, made sense to the people at the top. And also, you know, they, they could have larger customer base and a larger resource reach. But, you know, man, any exogenous, like, disruption to the system, like a, a plague or something, and you just see it crumble. And, you know, this is, we're going to be resetting that, too. I hope we do. I mean, you know, I, I had read recently was Michael Hudson article where uh, he had cited that upwards of 20 percent of greenhouse gas is coming from this international trade. And, you know, people, the, the World Bank has basically been a, uh, a vessel for years to squelch family farming and to develop corporate corporate farming in third world countries because the kind of green revolutions, and I think I've lived through at least two of them, um, are, you know, always made local people very vulnerable because, yes, the yields might have been good, at least for the first or improved over the first few years, but you've made people dependent on outside seed and fertilizer and pesticides and all those kind of stuff. And then it's just ripe for, you know, conglomeration. So a whole lot of this, you know, neoliberal nonsense is, you know, kind of crumbling. And yet, and yet, we still just hand money to the oligarchs. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I, mean, I I saw a bit of uh, Peter's interview, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the he he does a trade in this certain company that produces, I think, you know, um, three dimensional integrated chips, and and right before we're like, talking about Pelosi's Pelosi. trade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
the, the Pelosi. Well, I think it was his her husband. Yeah. Right before they, you know, they voted on this bill to just give the chip industry $52 billion. Uh, I mean, it just seems that our prescription is just give these people money and with the thought that capitalism is going to work it out and it never does. But I that's mean, not capitalism. If, if, if the government is giving $56 billion to Silicon Valley, yeah, that's not capitalism. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's I don't know what it is. It's it's fascism. It's even I mean, it's just basically a complete merging of, of government and and industry. Um, and, you know, it's just I had to laugh how feckless that Biden is. Apparently, Biden or whoever constitutes Biden in quotes when there comes to real action actually did do an executive order today or yesterday. I think he intervened in a strike. It was a railroad strike. And basically, um, he has blocked, it's a, it's a freight railroad strike. It was going to be a, one of a, a, a nationwide strike. And he uh, blocked it by executive order for 60 days and is naming arbitrators to intervene. Uh, arbitrators is the way that you squelch strikes because the arbitrators come in and they're supposed to be disinterested parties to bring the parties together. But of course, you know, they, it always is that the workers have to make concessions and it's the usual thing. I mean, these like hundred thousand plus rail workers are working longer hours. They're not, and they're working hours they have no control over and they aren't getting the raises. This is Amtrak the, Joe? The profits, you know, surprise. Amtrak Joe, yeah. he, lo he loves, the, well, he loves the railroads, just not the workers. Well, it's the, the Amtrak is, I believe it's just, Amtrak is just a passenger rail service, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, this is like the railroad carriers, the, you know, the railroads right. that, uh, that, that carry freight. Mm -hmm. So that's like Union Pacific and Norfolk and what are that, that the, oh, Burlington, Northern San Francisco, I think BNSF anyway, um, so, yeah, I, I, so yes, yes, but Antrac Joe basically intervened um, or somebody representing him intervened and, and now they have to sit down and they, they have to delay the strike by 60 days. Um, yeah, of course, strikes are disrupted. That's the whole freaking point. These guys are making all of these railroads, by the way, are making record profits. You'll be shocked to know. And they're not, and none of the profit is coming down to the workers. In fact, they're laying off people and they're making the people who are still there work, you know, work even longer hours. That's, that's the gist of the strike. And um, so, yeah, um, wow, it's amazing how fast Biden and the Democrats can act when the interest of their donors are at stake. So all of this nonsense, oh, it's the parliamentarian, oh, it's Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin. I mean, you know, but it's like he's doing, I mean, he's, he's performing a service for Democratic leadership. Otherwise, I mean, the Democratic leadership, vote for us because the planet's melting, women won't have abortions, this and that and the other thing, while they do nothing but fundraise. And yet, uh, Manchin, you know what committee he's on. He's on the Energy Committee. They're thinking of giving it to Murkowski. What's he doing? 
<laughs> Have you heard that? They want to give it, they, they're trying to woo Murkowski to become a Democrat by making her chairman. Democrat? Yeah. Um, well, look, Elisa Murkowski, she did the correct vote on Brett Kavanaugh. Remember that. Right. The two girls were, girl Republicans were in a quandary because, uh, you know, their two votes could have denied Kavanaugh a place on the Supreme Court. But, you know, good old Joe Manchin comes in with his vote for Kavanaugh and, you know, heats off of them. So basically, I think that um, I think Susan Collins voted for him because basically when she's no longer the pivotal vote, then the, the, the pressure is off and she felt more pressure after that from her Republican side. And, and uh, Murkowski voted uh, against because she owes the Republicans no favor. I mean, she literally owes the Republican Party no favor. I think the last time she was elected, which is astounding, she was a write-in candidate. Wow. You remember mm. that? Yeah, so what would, it's like, what, yeah, the, so... Uh, what would anyway. William of Ockham say about Mansion? What is... Uh, I have no idea. Ockham's Razor. But what would he say? Oh, Ockham's Razor? Ockham's Razor. Is He's it a, mansion or is it more complicated? I don't. Well, everything's more complicated when you really drill down to it. But as far as we'll ever know, this isn't complicated at all. This is pure leverage. Mansion is using his. The progressives just won't or can't or don't know how. They won't use theirs. And, uh, you know, I think. In particular, after refusing to use their leverage for uh, for the vote for speaker, after refusing it to force the vote on Medicare for all, they're saying that they're uh, refusing to use it to force the $15 minimum wage back into the Recovery Act when it got stripped out by the Senate and then sent back to the House. After all that, the last thing they, they at least, the very least they could have done was what anyway, was not to decouple the infrastructure bill from the, you know, from Build Back Better. As lame as that Build Back Better was, as watered down, it still had significant things in it. Um, and I'm sorry, Manchin wanted something. Why not deny him? Right. I mean, you could at least try. You don't know. But he obviously wanted that, that uh, infrastructure bill. So why not, at least for a couple of rounds, have the fight publicly, let, let d display who's on whose side. I mean, this is the kind of, you know, political fighting. This is the way you want to fight because, you know, you, you don't want to fight with knives and guns and biking belt axes. You know, it's just like this is this is the way you can fight and and not break physically break stuff. Um, do you give him, you know, does I, Biden I deserve any, Biden, when he, in the first 100 days, he got the, the $1.7 trillion stimulus package passed, right? And yeah. then he got the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, but not build back better. Are, well, the bipartisan infrastructure bill as David Dayan and others have pointed out, was a massive type of avenue for privatization. But right. okay, okay, we'll leave that aside. At least some stuff got done. 
we we have you know we there there was a continuation of COVID type relief, you know, and in a very very minimalist sense for small businesses, so we didn't just drop into a depression, but nothing structural. I mean, and and by the way, you know, that's the only way we could get out of what Matt Taibbi used to call this vampire squid of finance and Wall Street, you know, just around the necks of every, everything, including our military and our military industrial complex. I mean, that's when they need us. And then we just give them everything they want. They live. A lot of people die. <laughs> you know, we're getting poorer. And, uh, you know, it's just a holding pattern for the donors of both parties. So right. that's why it's it's kind of hard to really get excited over partisan politics anymore. It right. really is because it's the same crap. And, you know, when I had to laugh when when you guys were talking about, when you and Peter were talking about, like Biden going to Manchin's house or going down to West Virginia. I think, first of all, Biden can't do that. Second of all, the guy to do that was Bernie Sanders. Right. Now, why any leftist would have thought that that Biden was going to be emboldened to do what Bernie wanted to do after they moved heaven and earth to make sure that Bernie wasn't the nominee. I don't know how naive you can be. You know, and it's, it's not even like I want to say I told you so, but I mean, guys, look at what you're dealing with. It's just, I know. I mean, I was hopeful, too. I, I read into Obama a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of my hopes. <laughs> and, you know, so I understand what it is. You want to be optimistic. But, so Biden, you know, Biden's been president for a year and a half, basically, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, so I he think put, as of what? Uh, as of as June. Of a few days from now. Yeah. Yeah. So he pulled out of Afghanistan, which is huge. He put us right back into Ukraine. We're spending as much on Ukraine as we did each year in Afghanistan, but he he got us out of Afghanistan. He deserves some credit for that. The $1.7 trillion uh, rescue package, plus the bipartisan infrastructure bill. These are massive spending projects. I, again, he's a disappointment. But those are th well. The point is where where all the money is actually going is what's going to matter. I right. mean, there's the you know the bailout of Wall Street was a massive spending project, but it was all you know <laughs> very few players, and that's right. And that's right. the problem. I mean, like like hey, Trump spent a boatload of money too, and Trump was a Trump administration. I mean, Trump. Uh, I don't think Trump could find Afghanistan on a map. I'm just I'm just making I'm just in my in, in, in my mind, I'm just the the covid. Uh, he said his priority was to kick covid's ass. Uh, politically speaking, when you, you you walk around, most people think we've kicked covid's ass. I mean, most people aren't wearing masks and. So I think some people would give him credit and they, they say they're not as terrified. Give him credit for we're not worrying about it so much. Uh, some people would say, yeah, that's the problem. Um, but, you know, it doesn't it doesn't even matter. I mean, you know, it's we lost our window of opportunity twice. And Biden had one of those windows of opportunity to at least, you know, damp down the worst of the spread. If he had immediately, if he had had a mindset of Bernie Sanders, 
after, you know, when he was enough, by the time he was inaugurated, millions of people had been vaccinated. You know, there was a, already a lot of study about its efficacy and everything else. Immediately sent the formula out to the world's vaccine manufacturers, including that enormous state-of-the-art vaccine manufacturing plant in Northern India. And if we'd spent all of February, March, and April with a massive planet-wide vaccination program, we may have never gotten the Delta variant. Right. We don't know. We've had it. We didn't run that experiment, but it would have at least given us a chance. Well, but did you that think happened? And when, when we were doing you know, when we were doing those segments with Henry and the irritable immunologist throughout 2020, did you mm-hmm. ever imagine that there would be a vaccine so quickly, and that half this country wouldn't take it? I'd, I think we were talking about that at the time. And, you know, I was, but we, we were talking about a complicated or a more technical aspect of the vaccines and vaccine production. But uh, yeah, it seemed like that they were doing it, which, you know, I have to give whoever, I wouldn't give the credit to a president, but whoever in, you know, in the, the CDC, the NIH, and other research in uh, national labs and worked with the companies to get that vaccine out. I mean, it was a monumental achievement. There's no, that's the question. Now, if we have to keep taking booster after booster after booster, well, I'm willing to be a guinea for science, for real science, but. (laughs) We have to wrap it up. You know, it it did save lives. It did absolutely save lives. Yeah. And, um, so, All right, Professor. Anyway, Professor Marianne, I would not want to delay Professor Steinel. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist. Great job, great, very interesting, and she is Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, and still believes that Nina Turner still believes in Nina Turner, as we all do. Never give. I do. She's going to be taking an interesting evolution. My prediction is that she's going to have a very interesting evolution shortly. Good. Thank you. So, Great job. Follow uh, Professor Marianne Cummings on Twitter. Razor Girl. Hey, Saving Charlie Parker is out, and there's going to be a launch party August 8th, 2022, if you're in Denton, Texas. There's a book. Or anywhere close. Or anywhere close. Go to Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas, 7 to 9 p.m. August 8th, Monday, August 8th, Denton, Texas. Go to Steve's Wine Bar between 7 and 9. And you know what else is August 8th? What? Uh, I believe August 8th would be... Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Oh, wow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Rich Little's birthday. It's Rich Little's birthday, August. <laughs> no, I think, I think uh, Nixon resigned. I think either August 7th was the speech and August 8th. Somebody should, if only Professor Ann Lee were here. Uh but I think she is. Hey, I apologize. I, you know, I, I don't hear the keyboard unless I put these on because it's going through a different patch. And I was, okay. I was tinkling around during. 
during the, uh, the professor's thing. I'm, I apologize. I didn't mean to seem impatient. I heard you tinkle. Oh, no, I, I thought that there was a really nice little, you know, kind of musical backup. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do soundtrack next time for you. I'm tinkling on your keys right now. Hey, David, I'm in Amazon hell. You're in Amazon hell? Yeah, and it's starting to smell. Why? What happened? I've been spending the whole weekend, all day. I got everything mixed for the audiobook. By the way, Did you, you like say the, Amazon the hell? Audiobook? I'm in Amazon hell. I'll tell you why. Because I am having my audiobook distributed by a thing called Author's Republic, which puts it on... 50 different platforms. One of them is Amazon. Okay. So, how's my audio? Am I loud enough? Uh, check, check, check. I think so. Okay. Um, but you, it has to have certain technical specs. And I submitted it, and they sent back, no, you're, you got, your noise is too, too high, and your peak is too high, and your basic sound, your RMS is too low, all these specifications. So then I go in and I tweak it. And <clears throat> it turns out the, the thing that determines what the specs are is ACX. And the A stands, the standard for audiobooks now is Amazon Creative Exchange. That's, they're the ones that decide how much space you have before your first little bit of audio in each chapter and how much space at the end and how much noise you should have. And it's been rejected three different times. I think, I think they might've heard those songs. I think, it's I, I think you, I think, you know, yeah, I've said some nasty things myself about we Jeff have. Bezos. And I did two songs, Amazon hell and Amazon hell part right. two. Now something tells me Amazon, if you hired Amazon to do your audio book. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is, is right. that true? They have a service that you're not using, but if you paid for it, it would work. Right. You're right. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they own audible. They own everything. Remember that song, how many companies he owns, but it's just like, I, I finally, I, I have to, I have to get this figured out. Cause I want to get that. I want to get everything out. It's three weeks from tonight, the launch. Hey, can we do a little segment from the club at nine o'clock my time, ten o'clock. Whatever you want. We could do. You know what we could do is if if you're on time, <laughs> which you never are. But anyway, uh, if you're on time, we could we could do the last song. We could play Turtle. Okay. And then we could, then you could then you could I have the I have my. Uh, they're actually going to be um, we're going to be uh, doing it live to. We're going to go live on YouTube anyway, because he's got cameras. He's got a really great setup there, and he can broadcast, and he's got microphones. This is at Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas. Yeah, it's a gr great music venue in Denton, Texas. Uh, it used to be a little bitty place, and he, he just started, my good friend Jeff Eccles said, hey, how about we play, uh, I'll bring my bass and I'll have a piano. They started playing there, and then he started having music four nights a week, and then he decided, and it was so packed he just got a bigger place with a lot of room. He can seat about a hundred people. Wow! And he um, he's got great wines, great beers. 
And uh, he's a trumpet player himself. He's a very fine trumpet player. And uh, they're good. Steve and Karen, great friends of music. And uh, so we're going to do this thing. We're going to, um, I'll have books to sign and I'll just have hopefully CDs to sign and hopefully the audio book will be out. So people, our fans will be there and Rosanna Eckert's going to sing. Yeah. And, and, but I thought after, like, after that last song, we could just do a, a segment on your show. Uh, I'll have a couple mics. I'll have this mic and another one, and we can pass it around, and and uh, you can talk to people in the band. and Yeah. Maybe yeah. people in the chat can can ask questions. I would love that. Let's do that. I think it'll be good. I think it'll be good. I, I don't want to... We'll, we'll, we'll broadcast, you know, during your show, we're going to be broadcasting to Facebook, so I don't want to take listeners away. But we'll do one song. I think one song. I think you don't want to do a whole bunch of songs, but... Turtle is is the one thing we've debuted here. It seems to have a lot of interest. And you would play Turtle live? Yeah, we'll do Turtle live. Wow, we get a lot of requests for that. <laughs> I think it turned out, I like Turtle. Yeah, me too. Yeah. How is Texas? Are you, is it a scorcher? God, it's so hot today. It got to 109. Wow. I went out in 108 to water the plants. They're just so dry. You know, just trying to keep the vinca. We, my wife likes a lot of plants. And I've got her over the, for many years down here, she assumed she lived in New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> so she would buy plants. It would be per, she would look at gardens. I want this plant, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's not going to live here. Mm-hmm. And she finally figured it out. Vinca, begonias, they thrive. Begonias love the heat. Uh, Mandevilla, we've got some beautiful Mandevilla, but it's even too hot for them. It's b- burning their leaves. Uh, you know, it's just too dang hot. Got up to 109. I was out in 108, and even in the shade, it was like, oh, this this would kill me <laughs> if right. I stayed out here. <laughs> right. I would die here. I, I, I don't know how the homeless people survive this. I hope they're safe and and not yep. uh, hope they're hydrated. God, it's so hot. Yep. And it's about the same in uh, London right now. It's every. It's, yeah, it's it's terrible. And as you just pointed out, somebody has it worse. You can, you know, the homeless people oh, yeah. who can't afford air conditioning. Although I think my air conditioning has been turned off by the landlord. I don't think you're kidding. Well, I think uh, we're in danger of a blackout. You know, you turn up this. Texas is is flirting with it every day. They have these things, you know, with, you know, the thing that went out when it was cold, that could easily go out when it's hot. I mean, they have the use, the demand and the capacity. They show the lines on TV every day and and then um, last week they said, turn your thermostats up, turn your lights off, don't do any, you know, don't run your dryer. You know, it's just because this jerk of a governor hasn't got it together to put us on the grid with the rest of the world. So we're in, you know, we're in danger of rolling blackouts. And in the winter, you know, we have a fireplace, so we can kind of, we can kind of keep warm. And, and in the winter, you put on, more sweaters and stuff like that. And it's Texas. It's not going to, 
Right. It did get cold for a long time, but and people died. But it's nothing like if if the air conditioners went. I don't know how we ever. How do we ever get by without air conditioning, David? It's amazing. Uh, I I hate that. It is my vice. Freon is my vice. I yeah, can't, I, I can't think I'm, straight without. You got to be cool. Yeah, and and there would be no Arizona. Nobody would have moved to Arizona had it not been for air conditioning. Well, my dad and the witness gr- protection program. <laughs> my dad grew up in Arizona. Actually, was born there and grew up there. And uh, it's dry there. You can have a sw- what they call a swamp cooler. Are you hip to that? I had. Yep. They're horrible. You know, and horrible. what's that? I had a swamp cooler, and I was living with somebody years ago, and we just looked at each other, and, and we, I hate you. It was just hot. We were sweating. Well, were you in New Jersey? They're not going to work in New Jersey. I don't want to get into details, but I had a swamp cooler. Were you in Vegas? I don't want to get into it, but the person <laughs> I was with, and we just looked at each other, and we, I hate you. I know it's probably the heat... But I hate, I just remember this. (laughs) Well, I grew up in Western Kansas and we had those and some days they would work really well, you know, and, uh, but we didn't have air conditioning. But it's a fan with water, basically. Water drips down a a membrane, which is usually like, oh, like straw or something, straw-like. So it, it goes slowly, capillary action, it drips down. And that keeps running, a, a pump keeps running it in there. And then a fan blows through there. And if it's dry out, it's, it can make a, the air cooler, you know. But if it's, but even there, I remember on, on muggy days, I remember when I was a child, I, we would play and I'd come in and I would wipe off and then I'd realize, oh, I have to wipe off again. I couldn't, I didn't understand perspiration. Right. You know, it was so uncomfortable. And I would go like, I remember being very small and going like, why am I wet? I'm Now I'm wet, and then I wipe off, and now I'm wet again. I'm still miserable. I was but, reading uh, an interview with Steve Martin in People magazine, and he said, he says, it basically gets down to good food and good weather. And I thought about that. <laughs> I, I thought, can life be that simple? Good food could be. and it good weather. Be. And then I thought about San Francisco, which I knew I had to move out of. But I was never unhappy in San Francisco. There was always good food, good food and good weather. I knew I had to leave, but I don't think it's possible to be unhappy if uh, you live in San Francisco. I'm reminded of a, you know, you mentioned the, the, the Nixon resignation. Yes. I totally missed it. You know where I was during those two days? Where? I was sitting in our van, the band van, we had been to San Francisco to get famous. Didn't work. And uh, we had a manager. He wasn't very good. And uh, we did play a couple of things. Played up in Marin County. Played in uh, San Mateo. And, you know, uh, but we had to go back to Kansas. We just realized we had to go back. And the the van, which had been going up and down these streets in San Francisco for like six weeks um had bad u-joints i don't know if you know what a u-joint is no. but it's the thing that connects the it connects the drivetrain from the engine to the wheels and it's like 
it has to be, it has to give a little bit. But anyway, it would clunk and clunk and clunk. And I took it to a mechanic and he put it up on the lift. And I said, will this U-joint make it to Kansas? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, as long as you put this car on a flatbed and tow it there. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, you, you know those pictures like in, uh, in the desert where the road just goes forever and ever and ever, and then there's mountains off? It was in a scene like that. It was 11.50 at night, and we pulled into the service station. The guy hassled us because we had long hair, and we filled up the gas tank, and we hadn't even left his driveway when the U-joints went out. So we spent the next two days waiting for U-joints to arrive. We had to wire for money from the Trump. Another, my good buddy, I was playing piano mostly then. My good buddy, Mike, Mike Tice, played trumpet, and he, uh, he wired his dad for money so we could pay for the U-joints. And then they came on a bus, and they were the wrong U-joints. So we're two days sitting in this van, no radio. And when I got home to Kansas, my dad said, Nixon's gone. Nixon resigned. He's no longer. I said, what? I totally missed it. But that's good, the date. I can, I can maybe go back and remember when we did that stuff. But uh, there were. Hey, f- um, let me quiz you on something. Okay. All right. I'm going to read you the list of the five Watergate burglars. Okay. And you tell me where they were born. Where they were born? Where they were born. Bernard Barker. How would I know that? Bernard Barker. Where do you think he was born? I I have no clue. How would I know Cuba. This? New Jersey. Cuba. Cuba? Virg- oh. Virgilia Gonzalez. Cuba. Cuba. I'm looking at it right now. Eugenio, Eugenio Martinez. Cuba. Cuba. Frank Sturgis. Cuba? Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah. And James Maybe. McCord, yeah. Oklahoma. Three out of five yeah. were born in Cuba. Interesting. What was that quote about Nixon? Somebody on your show was talking about... Uh, what? During that, like there was, well, we don't want to get into the, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Right. There was like information. He was threatening. I can't remember the details, but that was mind blowing. Mind blowing. Yeah. Hey, hey sh- I uh, listened today to your, your uh, you, you inspire me with what you say in the news. So I have, have a little song for you. Oh, good. And then, and then I sent one along. Yeah, to, you, to play. You, what, yeah, you like him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you like him, but I'll do this. You know, you last week we did. Your, my mommy was a commie, but I got new. Inf- I got new. I like my mom, but it. you added my mommy was a cowboy, which I thought was I, that was a mistake. <laughs> but I like that assless chaps. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play trumpet on this. Oh, good. I got to get my reverb going. Check. Check. Yeah, that sounds good. And I'm gonna use I'm gonna use this mute here, like this is a Dizzy Gillespie kind of mute. Okay, and I hear the reverb. Okay. Okay. So I'll do the best I can here. Mm-hmm. 
My mommy was a commie She drove a Ford Fiesta She didn't trust the cops She was afraid they might arrest her My mommy loved Eugene Debs He was kind of meek and mild She visited him in prison I might be his love child <laughs> My mommy was a commie She was red to the bone She was absolutely sure That the FBI had tapped her phone mm relationship was incredible but now that I think about it it might have been a shade edible <laughs> edible Freud had a bit to say about about mothers and their sons my mommy wished that I was gay she made me hang around with nuns <laughs> My mommy was a commie, my mommy was a red She mowed the lawn on Saturday when I was still in bed <laughs> My mommy was a cowboy This is the fade out part My mommy was a commie My mommy was a commie Crowd you got there, Dave. It's a great crowd. That's amazing. I got to learn how to clip these things. That that's amazing. I'll and do it, I'll do a version of that. I like the Ford Fiesta when he. Uh -huh. <laughs> Lane was funny. Lane was very funny. Oh, Lane as Saint Christopher of Hitchens. Oh, oh it was hilarious. And then Lane, he, the Ford Fiesta. Lane's and I thought, oh, Ford Fiesta, Arresta. He's <laughs> afraid she might arrest him. Lane is amazing. He, he never fails. Yeah, I like him a lot. So it's kind of interesting when you play live, something's changed over the past two years because it sounds, I think it sounds, I don't think the Skype, what are we using? That's Skype, uh, Zoom. I don't think it's that horrible. 
in terms of the connection? It was good last week. I think, I think maybe Zoom is getting better with their, their whatevers. Who knows? Maybe. I like to think they are. Should we play um, You Like Them? Yes. I, I, this has my most favorite rhyme in the whole, in my whole, uh, what would you call it? Oof. My oh, body of oof. work. Canon. Your body canon. of work. Your canon. In my canon, the, the Feldman canon. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they, the girls called you in school. I heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You just got they call me the cannon. Uh huh. Because I I look yeah. like uh, William Broderick. Was that his By name? By the way, Who Eugene Debs. It, Eugene Debs was not a handsome guy. He looked like he was pretty pretty cool guy though. Boy, he he really tried to talk about up against the wall. <laughs> he was he got arrested. A, it, it, sedition. They got him for sedition. He was against uh, World War One. Yeah. Boy, well, was she wrong about that. Yeah, wasn't wrong about that. Okay. You like him. You like him. New music. Yes. Well, this is not new music. It's old music, but uh, we haven't played it in a while. Great. You like him. He's groovy. Like a movie that you watched one time when you were kind of high. But now you can remember exactly why you liked it, but you did. He's charming, it's alarming how charming he is when he's for me. And just like that movie that we watched when we were stoned, we like him. He's gregarious, he's hilarious, and most of his head is hairyless. And like the mean girl from school who treated you cruel, you like him and you don't know why. You like him and you don't know why. You like him and you don't know why. What a crowd. What a crowd. Well, that's <laughs> Professor Mike's. Is it? He's hilarious, and most of his head is, is hairless. hairless. Yeah. Is that the <laughs> rhyme you like the most? I love that. I think that's Cole Porterish. Yes, it is. Yes, it you is. Know? Yeah. Well, Professor Mike. You know, the mean girls from school who treated you cruel. Did you ever have any run ins with mean girls? Uh, no, every girl in school loved me. Was mean? No, they just really? love me. Oh my God! Yeah, a guy like me. No. Well, the me, the mean girls are mean to you because they like you. Yeah. That's what's kind of cool about it. Really? I was always attracted to them, and the meaner they were, the you know the more like it, it got to me. I think sort of. I you know I'm not. My wife was not one. Of, my knife. My wife was not a mean girl. She was. She's very sweet. Yeah. Uh, 
You don't want to say otherwise because she's mean. <laughs> Mike Steinow is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary and Running the Changes. His most recent release is... Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's out on Origin Records. He's also a writer of novels, and he's the author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. It's published by Dorrance Books. Go to savingcharlieparker.com. Buy the book. Go buy the book. If you do not love this book, I will reimburse you. It's got the Feldman Guarantee, and he will be in Denton, Texas, at Steve's Wine Bar, Monday, August 8th, 2022, from 7 to 9 p.m. It's the book launch of Saving Charlie Parker, Monday, August 8th, 2022, at Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas. And maybe uh, we'll, we'll be there. The show will be there. Maybe we'll... Absolutely. We'll do a song. We'll do Turtle from Live. Turtle Live. You are an inspiration. Thank you. Oh, you are. You're my muse. I love you. I really do. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to my website, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation to office hours, which you should attend every Friday night at 8 p.m. Office hours was incredible the past Friday. Let us now go to our friend in Mexico, Rodrigo. How are you feeling? Hi, David. Uh, better, thanks. Uh, I was watching another video explaining why science is on the side of trans, bi, and intersexual people this weekend, and I thought... Heaven forbid I agree with the class reductionists, but we spend way too much time explaining science to people who refuse to use Celsius degrees and the metric system out of principle. Unlike the class reductionists, I do believe in the value of explaining why the science and the fact aren't with the conservatives on nearly every issue, but we also have to figure out which issues those who are not leftists care about and help them realize that the same people who call school teachers Marxist groomers but also want to give them guns are the same people who believe in state rights to stop abortion unless they can pass a national bill against abortion. And the same people who claim Joe Biden is a secret socialist in the pocket of AOC and Big Bernie, unless Uncle Joe fist bombs with a spoiled air who ordered that a journalist be chopped up in an embassy, in which case the left needs to give him a break. These are also the same people who literally invented the moral panic over trans people in bathrooms attacking women, who invented the moral panic over critical race theory, who pushed FINA to say trans women were allowed to compete with cis women if they completed their transition before age 12, 
Years before most kids in the U.S. will be allowed to spend two years convincing a therapist or two to let them use hormone blockers to delay adolescence. They are also the same people who have refused to raise the minimum wage since 2007, but also keep promising that this or the next tax code for the rich will explode employment opportunities and, in the immortal words of Ted Cruz, quote, unleash the engine of American innovation, end quote. They're the same people who spend millions every year to convince poor people to vote for them because they refused free federal money for the Medicaid expansion. The same people who tell us undocumented migrants who are forced to accept less pay to do manual labor are the reason there's no jobs for the middle class. The same people who pretend that there was no way a 10-year-old rape victim that had to cross state lines to get life-saving medical care was real, which is how we found out that girls under 15 need abortions in Ohio at a rate of roughly one per week. The same people who tell us there's nothing they can ever do about companies profiteering and driving inflation up to hand their CEOs bigger bonuses, but here's a silver lining to the decrease on the rate of salary increases because that's how inflation works if you use alternative facts. The same people who were happy to spend $8 trillion in the Middle East over the last two decades to, with nothing to show for it because 3,000 people died on 9-11, but God forbid anyone start an investigation into why we were starting to measure the daily mortality rate of COVID-19 in 9-11s per day. The same people who tell us how horrible abortion is, but also they're willing to destroy Planned Parenthood even though abortion is around 2% of the services they provide. And the same people who see Texas and wonder, can I do that too? Let me explain the Texas lawsuit. A conservative lawyer is trying to outlaw PrEP funding because he thinks preventing AIDS encourages homosexuality. And a friend in Texas told me that this clinic they depend on receives most of its funding for PrEP. For those who don't know, PrEP is the drug cocktail that suppresses the HIV virus so much you can give other people AIDS through unprotected sex. And of course, the U.S. has one of the highest maternal mortality rates among rich countries, partly because of two perverse incentives. On the one hand, people who buy hospitals crunch numbers and discover they can make more money by closing down rural hospitals than keeping them open, so they close them. On the other, you have politicians bought and paid for by lobbyists who are constantly changing to war working to change the laws to sue their patrons so that it's cheaper to close hospitals than it is to keep them open. And this is why in many rural areas of the United States, women who need medical assistance have to drive themselves to a hospital six, five or six hours away. Not women who need abortions, just women who have been shot or were in any kind of accident. I could keep going for half an hour, easily, but again, the important part is to figure out how conservatism affects the people you're talking to, and which of those many ways they will just shrug off and which they will care about. It's very likely that they care about gas prices, 
But as we saw last week, when gas prices were too low, Fox News discovered that a very dangerous caravan was heading to the border. Still, we need everyone who isn't too far gone, and whichever non-leftist you're talking to, there's probably a few issues they care about that you can use to explain the class divide. Not the artificial one you see on the news about homeless people wanting handouts, but the real one where the government refuses to spend money fixing roads, but they just gave the Pentagon $840 billion. Once again, dozens of billions more than the Pentagon asked for. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. Well, that is our show. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, sign up for my newsletter. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, hit attend a live taping and uh, we'll send you a link. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I want to thank the people in our Zoom room and I want to thank the people who put this show together. They are, they are, they are, it's coming up on the screen, and I will read it properly. Today's show is produced by Dan Frankenberger, along with Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Hannah Feldman. Thank you all for your contributions, and I think we're going to have a meeting Wednesday. I hope everybody can make it. Thank you to Grace Jackson, Listen to Literary Hangover and follow Grace on Twitter at Grace Jackson. Thank you to Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. They are the hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. Thank you to Dan Frankenberger. Thank you to Greg Brarick. Get his book, Criminology on Trump. It's published by Rutledge, Criminology on Trump. Trump. Thank you to Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you to Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com. Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. And of course, Professor Mike Steinell. For more information about Mike Steinell, go to mikesteinell.com. Buy his book, Saving Charlie Parker, by going to Saving Charlie parker.com. Thank you all for listening. Tell your friends about this show. Copy the link and share it. And give us a good review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, Spotify, wherever you're listening, give us a good review and spread the word. We have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to that. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Walking 13 miles on every shift with not a chair in sight. Lifting 20,000 pounds a day, that don't seem right. Saving plastic bottles to have a place to pee. Injuries in this place are the highest in the industry. Don't believe those TV ads, things ain't what they seem. Don't tell me this sweatshop has become the American dream. We need to stand together. 
can't do it on our own. We need to stand together and make our presence known. We need to stand together to get the union done. We need to stand together. What side are you on? One million strong, working two shifts a day. Packing all day long while the cameras are running away. One hundred thousand trucks tearing up and down the roads, delivering stuff all over the world in forty-ton loads. When did this sweatshop become the American dream? Don't believe those TV ads. Things ain't what they seem. We need to stand together. Can't do it on our own. We need to stand together and make our presence known. We need to stand together and get the union done. We need to stand together. Which side are you on? Your mates can't listen to music. Gotta pack all those crates. Start to feel like a robot, but soon you understand there's more of them than you. That's always been the plan. Do not believe those TV ads. Things ain't what they seem. And don't try to tell me this sweatshop will become the American dream. We got to stand together. We can't do it on our own. Stand together. We need the UAW, the AFL-CIO. We got to stand together. We can't do it on our own. We got to stand together. We need the American postal workers and the farm workers. We need the teamsters and the RWDSU. We need everybody. Call their phone. Get on the phone. Call your neighbors. They need to stand together. Yeah, yeah. We need to stand together. That's what I'm talking about. We need to stand together.